Combing the Stacks podcast, your go-to podcast for six decades of music, three albums at a time. Each decade, we cover over 200 albums spanning all musical genres and tastes from the well-known acts to the cult favorites. Your tour guides on this journey are John, Josh, and Matt, three amateur music podcasters who all share a love of music and a shared quest to hear the next great album. And now we head into the Stacks. It's the evening of July 6, 2023, and you're listening to the Combing the Stacks Music Podcast. I'm John, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, not as always, I should say, at this time with the full staff, it's Matt and Josh. Let me correct myself right there um, in saying that we have the full team this week. Um, you you may be wondering why there was no episode next week, and we'll talk about that, or last week, I should say, but we'll talk about that in a second, but I do want to remind you that... Uh, our home platform for our show is Spotify for Podcasters. You can uh, check us out by searching Coming to Stacks Music Podcast. We have a YouTube account, uh, playlist for every decade. Uh, this is the last regular episode of Season 3, which covers the 80s. Uh, in Season 1, we did the 60s, and in Season 2, we did the 70s. And we will be back for Season 4, covering the 90s as we come contemporary for the decades that that we live through and, and can add some color to. Uh, I'm going to back away there. There also is a Letterboxd account that Josh curates, uh, Coming to Stacks Music Podcast, and mm-hmm. some playlists on Spotify as well. I do want to bring that up. But enough from me. Josh, on this last episode of the season, regular episode at least, how are you? What a ride. What a ride the 80s have been. I lived it before. I'm living it again. And it's great. Great to be back after a week off. And... The, uh, I saw some live music. I saw the Indigo Girls live with uh, Neko Case opening at a nice amphitheater where we are, and it was a great show. Uh, always interesting to see a band live you're not really familiar with. You know, we listened, we talked about their their full uh, major label debut, so I knew the songs off of that, but, you know, they've had multiple albums since then, and uh, they put on a good show. People, and it's always, you know, to, to see a a fan base like a dedicated fan base super into their music and know all the words and dancing and everything that's uh that was fun so i had a good time excellent 
well, got some some music in there. And Matt, what have you done uh, in our hiatus? Oh, a little of this. I bought a new car. What? Because my, my old, <laughs> well, I'm leasing a car, I should say, because my old car, the transmission went oh, of yeah. my 2020, my 2010 RAV4. And uh, I, I saw how much the price tag was on a new transmission and said, ah, maybe I shouldn't do that. So I should nice. get a new car. And if you're Smile. buying new cars, piece of advice here, guys, uh, you don't just walk into, well, depends on the model. If you want to buy a more of a popular model, you're going to be waiting a while. So, um, you know, just be forewarned if you need a new car. Uh, so would the, you get a Camaro? <laughs> I got, <laughs> I did not get a Camaro. No, it's I actually, no, I got one of the more popular ones to get the Honda CRV coming my way in sometime in late August. So, um, nice. So yeah, so we are a one car family for the summer, which, uh, which is okay, which is we're, we're making it work. So, um, nice. but yeah, we're good. What color is it going to be? It's like a dark blue. That's the only thing. I didn't really get much of a choice on that. It's like, you want it here by this date? Yeah, okay, you're going to get the dark blue one. Okay, I'll take the dark yeah. blue one. So, Nice. Yep. Like when, when you go on the website of a car and then they're like, oh, build the car that you want, it's like it's such a tease because it's like, oh, I want all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, that's not how it works. Yeah, <laughs> it's not like, anymore. You get what we have. Back when America so. built things, yes. Sure. Yeah. What yeah. about you, John? When are you getting a new car? You've had yours for a while, I know. I... And- when I need it, I guess <laughs> yeah. would be the best way to when describe it. it. When the until I'm going fails. To, yeah, when the transmission fails. drive it until it's there. So, yep. yep. But Same. as of now, no no new car for me. Are you still driving, driving the Toyota? Is that what it was from? No. Oh, you're not? Okay. You had yeah. a Toyota before, didn't you? Um, yes. Many, 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 many okay. years ago. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Josh, John's so. had a new car since then. So, yeah. yes. <laughs> like I'm talking eight years ago was pretty yeah. much when that Toyota went away. So yes, that there has been a car since then. So, okay. Well, we have a jam packed episode tonight. So, uh, all, all killer, no filler, I think will be the, mm-hmm. the theme for this episode. Let's try to run down all the stuff that we're going to do today. Um, Josh, you want to take a shot at telling the listeners all of the stuff, and then you could timestamp all of it in the, yes. uh, the bumper. I do want to mention, by the way, we do have a show that I guess is going to be like a lost show that Matt and I did tape last week covering four albums. We even bumpered it last week, but it did not end up. So if you were fiending for a CTS fix, we apologize. Uh, you probably got dope sick on the drugs that is CTS, but uh, it is around, and we'll just drop it like an easter egg maybe or uh well, t- or like a get, band you'll get double episodes this week i'll i'll work overtime and and get get that out or maybe point. we just hold it in escrow like and then we could put <laughs> it in threat? if there's a week no like just like kind of like the lost episode that just comes out so send it's us money like, or we're gonna drop this other episode <laughs> a patreon <laughs> exclusive that patreon we don't have uh no like kind of like a band has i i found out i, I won't go too far on this but I found out two days ago. Did you know that Mariah Carey wrote and had an alternative album released in 1995, but the album, they wouldn't let her put it out on the album. So Hmm. she kind of gifted it to a friend of hers who sang, but she kept her vocals layered in the back. And so the band's name is Chick. And apparently they're going to like drop the actual album with Mariah Carey singing the lead parts on it. Um, it's fascinating. I never wow. knew that. No, she apparently disclosed this on Twitter in late 2020. Something. I mean, I don't really pay attention to Twitter. So, mm-hmm. hmm. were you guys aware of this? No, definitely not. 
So yeah, so, this was like something that she just like she like even a side project or something. So, so she wrote the album, but it's a female lead singer in the band, and there's all of this. It was a band that actually got released and reviewed and stuff, but people just thought it was kind of like just a straight ahead alternative band, right? Like they had a little like pop punk sound to them. But when you know to listen for Mariah Carey, you're mm-hmm. like, oh shit. Like that's definitely Mariah Carey but it's singing a def- background vocals. It's a fact. It's a Mariah Carey album done by somebody else before she. Well, the other woman it. is definitely singing the lead, but yeah. she is she kept her vocals in the back like a background singer. So it's like, it's you think it's, I guess when it got released, they thought it was the woman's voice layered, mm. like in the background. But the layering is actually the Mariah Carey part of it, and she wrote the physical songs themselves. I guess, you know, that was when she wasn't super happy. She was doing like daydream but trying to break away from the standards and her marriage and stuff like that and i guess she was listening she said she was listening to like a lot of like courtney love and like garbage and stuff and so she decides she went to an alternative album and she would do wow. it at night after recording daydream and yeah it's What's, the band's name is chick they only did one album chick. obviously mm-hmm. huh. c-h-i-c-k and um yeah, there's like, a lot of things that in like the modern era would like this woman who was the person who recorded was a musician who'd been Mariah Carey's roommate, yet somehow no one put two and two together, right? That like this was a thing. They kind of really were stealth about it. So yeah, there was so a I very do, interesting thing. Mm-hmm. I am sliding. not seeing I'm not seeing it on Spotify. So it's like a sliding. I listen to it on I listen to it on YouTube. Is <laughs> when chi- I see the chicks. I see chicken no, no, friend. No, 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 no. It's definitely mm, the okay. band's name is Chick. It's all over YouTube. Chicken all right, so chicken you got to YouTube that. Yep. So they did a whole album. Yep. Never heard so. of that, John. That's Are a good little Easter egg. Pre-research mm-hmm. into the '90s. How did you come across this? <laughs> it came. I forget how I stumbled across it. Um, I, I can't remember. I've been listening to a ton of music and doing a ton of reading in my vacation time because now I actually have free time. So mm. I fill it with the things that I'm passionate about, like moving around and reading and listening to music. I've been listening to a lot of music not for the podcast as well. Mm. So, mm-hmm. Wait, you're passionate about moving around? That's good. <laughs> like being active, being active, you know, being active. So, mm-hmm. Got it. I can't be as exciting as, you know, what am I cooking and buying cars? So I have to rely on other stuff. So, sure. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it. Fair enough. So why don't you run down uh, what we're covering this week? Yes. So we've got a jam-packed episode, as John said. We're going to do Matt's This day in music history we've got the buzz bin as always two songs this week uh suedehead by morrissey and sweet jane by cowboy junkies we've got the last matt and john sing the hits of the 80s and the full bio episode covering tom petty's full moon fever the stone roses self-titled album and cure disintegration all from 1989 there we go well Let's start, we can start wherever we want, but let's start with Matt's history this week. So, take it away, Matt. Such is a history of where someone has been killed. Matt's history, I like that. Uh, uh, So I'm covering, uh, this is actually going to be July 7th is what we're covering today, because we've already done a July 6th, so uh, the day that this drops. So July 7th, so uh, 57 years ago, I'm sorry, in 1957, which is 66 years ago, Elvis Presley scored his first UK number one with All Shook Up, and it stayed at number one for seven weeks, so... Uh, 66 years ago, that happened. Uh, 60 years ago, in 1963, the Rolling Stones made their first UK TV debut when they appeared on Thank Your Lucky Stars, which is a show 
that uh, they had a total of 13 appearances on between 1963 and 66. Um, 52 years ago in 1971, um, so Bjorn Olveus married Ag- Agnetha Falkstag. Who are those two people? From you ABBA. ABBA, you got it. That's right. <laughs> there you go. So they were married in 1971, and... Uh, they were divorced nine years later, but I was going to say happy anniversary, but not so much. Um, and 45 years ago in 19, uh, 1978, Talking Heads released their second studio album, More Songs About Buildings and Food, which was a record that we covered last season. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the first, if you guys recall, that was the first of the three Talking Heads albums produced by Brian Eno. Yep. And it did feature their first top 30 single, which was a cover of Al Green's Take Me to the River later covered by Billy Bass. Um, he likes uh, more trilogies, Brian Eno, doesn't he? That's, I guess he does. I wonder if that's part of the the oblique strategies do, is travel in threes. Does he do three albums with U2? Bowie. Oh. He did three. Did, am I, U2, did Eno work he with did, U2 or am I thinking of Daniel? Yeah. No, he did. Joshua Tree and Octung okay. Baby Octung he did, Baby. right? Okay. But I don't know did if he did Did he do Zuropa? I don't think, the trilogy I think he just did two. Okay. Maybe a different oblique strategy by the time the late 80s rolled around. So, but. Uh, 43 years ago in 1980, Led Zeppelin played their last ever concert with John, drummer John Bonham when they appeared in West Berlin at the end of a European tour. Sadly, John Bonham would die almost three months later in um, late, August, uh, late September of 1980. Guys, uh, Eno did produce Europa. That, there you go. <laughs> oh, wow. So he does travel in threes. Yep. Yes. Along with the Edge and Flood, whoever that is, I've heard of Flood. Mark Ellis is his. He's like a house, like yeah, music yeah. guy, isn't he? Yeah, techno guy. Yeah. Yep. Um, and uh, all right, twenty-four years ago, nineteen eighty-nine, it was announced that for the first time, compact discs were outselling vinyl albums, and I think that that just recently reverted the other way around. I think that that I remember saying well, something about <laughs> yeah. that recently, or somebody mentioned that that, that finally, sense. like LPs are outselling CDs, so. Um, 24 years later. Uh, sad news, 17 years ago. They're uh, July, both in, not selling super well. Let's just go. No, that's true. To Overall, streaming. compared so, yeah. to compared to yeah. their height, that's, that's yeah, very sure. true. Yeah, when everyone uh, had a record player. <laughs> uh, you know what? They're both out selling? Cassettes. <laughs> Sheet music. <laughs> what are those Eight tracks? that are on player, player pianos? pianos. <laughs> Eight tracks. <laughs> Uh, so 17 years ago, uh, in 2006, Sid Barrett from Pink Floyd died from complications arising from diabetes. He was only 60 years old. We talked about him multiple times when we covered Pink Floyd, particularly mm-hmm. in the early albums, one of the founding members and driving force behind the start of that band. Um, That's an interesting one because 60 is young, but mm. 60, I feel like for Sid Barrett, was old. Yeah, if you, so. ever saw, if you ever saw pictures of him in his latter years, he, it's just, he's like unrecognizable. Also influential to many other artists that we talked about, Sid Barrett. For sure. I would say. Uh, <clears throat> all right. And then, um, so what else do I have here? Oh, this was funny. And this happened in 2017. The official charts company overhauled the way it compiles the UK top 40 in an effort to stop A-list artists elbowing newer acts out of the way. And this was actually spearheaded by Ed Sheeran, who whose new album at the time, Divide, 
uh, proved so popular that it, it propelled 16 tracks of his into the top 20. So he, even he was kind of like, that's ridiculous. So like whatever calculations. He's like, there's using. only so many songs I could steal at one time. So. <laughs> uh and then in uh, 2015, uh, this was another funny, I'm like, where are people coming up with this stuff? But climate sci- Scientologists, uh, or Scientologists, Wait, climate, Cli- <laughs> climate scientists, excuse me. I was going to say, that's an oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> climate scientists from five leading universities found that 163 of Bob Dylan's 542 songs referenced the climate, which represents almost a third of his catalog, and they then declared him the musician most likely to mention weather in his lyrics. Jesus, um, this fact did not go right. There's got to be at least nine <laughs> other tropes that Bob Dylan mentions more times than the climate, so did they think that was... I mean, well, these know. are... These are climate scientists, so you know they leave and that something leave like three hundred eighty-seven were loose character sketches of an individual, <laughs> so which makes uh, him the greatest writer of this generation, <laughs> the Flannery O'Connor of music, according to the Society for Literature Studies. The f- yeah, <laughs> whatever. Uh, yeah, all right, Michael Jackson in two thousand nine. Michael Jackson's family and fans said farewell to the pop star. Uh, at an emotional memorial service. That's like 14 years ago now. So that's uh, it was kind of um, uh, kind of crazy. Uh, so uh, that happened. Also on the same day, Ozzy Osbourne became the first artist to be honored on Birmingham's own Hollywood-style Walk of Fame. Oh yeah, so you can, the yin and the yang. There. Who else and he, is in Birmingham? <laughs> I, I, I the other well, I don't know who else. Everybody that's on it, but I guess Footballers. at the same time, yeah. <laughs> at the same time, Duran Duran. Uh, Robert Plant and UB40 were also uh, uh, followed uh, Ozzy Osbourne at that time. Oh, they yep. followed him or they were yep. already on? Right? Well, okay. uh, it would they, have been awesome would be... if UB40 got like on there before Ozzy Osbourne. No, I think it was all like, like he was not he was he was announced first and then the other art those other artists were announced afterwards. So he would there was roughly the same time, but he was the first one officially on. And then he later said he, it was way more uh, uh, meaningful to him than being on the actual Hollywood Walk of Fame. I don't know if he is on that or not. Probably not. I mean, he's not a Hollywood guy, but um, uh, I mean, they have all, it's basically it's everybody culture. though. I guess yeah, yeah it's true. Uh, and I think that's all I got for that. Oh wait, no, wait. Live Earth six uh, so uh, sixteen years ago in twenty seventeen, the Live Earth concerts took place around the world with the police closing the day's events in New Jersey. I don't remember this, but I guess this was a concert that was organized by former U.S. Vice President Al Gore as part of his campaign campaign to heal the planet. I think based on the weather that we're all experiencing right now around the world with record high temperatures, we can all say that this was a raving success. Um, but this was a concert that was uh, performed to hundreds of thousands of fans to highlight climate change. They were held in Washington, Rio de Janeiro, Johannesburg, London, Hamburg, Tokyo, Shanghai, and Sydney. Uh, Doesn't that just seem like the opposite of what a climate thing should be? Like, let's put all these big electronic all over the world and have a have them spread out all over the place with big shows. I don't know. There's just part of me that laughs at that whole thing. Like, yeah. Yep. Am I am I being too cynical or yeah? No, there's uh, some truth. I mean, it, and they had to fly places. Carbon too, offsets, right? all that. Yeah, like in buses well, and all like that stuff. Was it like a fundraiser? Stuff. I assume for climate or something. I to so raise awareness. So I'm sure the proceeds went to some sort of organization. Burying for that, the yeah. money in the ground. Was there a yeah. VIP section for the climate? Like people that care more because they can pay more. Yeah. So who who was the band that we we covered who shit all over like those type of uh shows like oh like uh, like benefits and stuff 
Yeah. Um, Some cantankerous. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. It wasn't the Mekons. It was somebody who I did research on, like just chat all over hmm. the um, the whole the whole concept of that. Oh no, you know who it was? The Smiths. It's not that. It's a no. It's a podcast I listened to. Believe it or not, it was Chumbawamba who started out like basically as like <laughs> oh, a they're anarchists. as yeah, like an anarchist band. Yeah. And like the yeah. '80s, they did a whole album about how much they hated Live Aid and like how they just hated <laughs> everything about it. So that's what I was thinking of. So that yeah. was like that was their concept mm-hmm. album. How Live Aid sucks. It was basically <laughs> yeah one of their earliest albums was just like shitting all over Bob Geldof and the concept that's funny. of Live Aid. Yeah, they had yeah. like really inflammatory song titles like you know Dying Kids on the News or something like that. That. Yeah, so that's what I was yeah. thinking of. Mm-hmm. They would have hated probably that climate show. Oh, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And then, so that was a lot of uh, stuff that happened, but we have only one birthday today. Happy birthday, celebrating his 83rd mm. year on this planet. Ringo Starr, 83, oh, oldest yeah. member of the Beatles, turns 83 today. Or, yeah, well, tomorrow, actually, yes. but today. Happy sure. birthday, Ringo. There you go. Ringo, always my favorite Beatle to watch on those mid-60s videos they used to do, like where they'd all be together. Right, like riding a log or putting up umbrellas and stuff, and Ringo you mean always in their sort movies of movies and stuff. Yeah, no, just the video. They'd shoot like little videos for the songs, like eight days a week and promo films, and stuff like that. Yeah, promo films, and Ringo always cracked me up on those. So he was the best actor of all of them. If you ever watch those mm-hmm. movies, he definitely had the best acting, which explains why he was cast in. The Magic Christian, which conflicted with the Let It Be sessions, which if you guys remember that, I think it was I think it was the Magic. Christian. Wasn't like Peter O'Toole? Wasn't he was friends with Peter Sellers. Sellers. With John, or Peter, Peter Sellers, Sellers was yeah. friends with with Ringo, right? Ringo was also the conductor yeah. on the I think it was Thomas the Train oh, uh, yeah, kid I saw show. An article about that recently. Yeah, George Carlin was it for, was one of that was was also played that conductor, but uh, yeah, Ringo's Ringo's been around a lot of different parts well, of peace the and uh, love, pop culture Ringo. world. That's Peace right. and love. Peace mm-hmm. and I think love. he yep. is touring too. He came to Ben sure earlier this month or year yep. or something. He usually plays casinos. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> he plays yeah, he played like Mohegan Sun and stuff. Oh. Yeah. So Well, Josh, there's a song in Matt in my heart right now that has to be sung or there's ten songs I think that are in Matt in my heart right now. And yep. we're bursting at the seams to hear what we're covering this week. Yeah, I write the song that the whole world sings, and it's Matt and John sing the hits, the segment where I pick a Billboard Hot 100 chart from a week that one of our albums was released, and Matt and John will try and sing the top 10 of that week. This week, we actually have two albums for the first time ever that came out the same day, so Stone Roses Mm. and Cure both were released May 2nd, 1989, so that is the chart that I went with, and I'm not going to lie, guys, this this is going to be a challenging one, and then it gets easier as we go so um, okay. these bottom ones were for a bunch of randos in my started opinion. from the bottom now we here that's what i have to say to that josh, josh. So, maybe yeah. we'll maybe we'll surprise you with our vast knowledge so, of 80s hits. I, I, I really hope you guys pull pull these ones out um that would be very surprising so starting at 10 uh an album we covered four weeks on the chart and uh pe- reaching the peak position of number one and it is She Drives Me Crazy by the Fine Young Cannibals. Where where do you even start with that song? I like, can't have <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I don't really She watch. drives me crazy. Ooh, 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 like no, no one else. else. Ooh, ooh. She drives me crazy. 
and I can't help myself. How'd I, how'd I do on that? That was Perfect. good. That was okay. okay. Yeah. That, that was, was easy, well. Josh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was easy. That was a, and we all, all three were surprised and liked that album when we covered it a few mm, weeks that was back. A good, that was a good record. Um, My dad I has good taste. I was surprised I liked it, but I, I definitely um, liked it more than I thought I was going to. So Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I guess that's what I meant. We, we were all pleasantly surprised by by it. Um, the uh, number nine song this week, Rising Up from number 11 last week, it is Room to Move by Anna Motion. <laughs> you know that song? Oh, my God. I, I do not, not know that. I don't think that's even their I, most famous song. Um, no, so. <laughs> the Anna Motion, the song that used to be the beginning of Saturday Night's main event, WWF, Josh, was Anna Motion. <laughs> really? <laughs> yep. Yep. And I can't remember what the name of it was, but I have no idea. It was not that song you just mentioned. Yeah. So, okay. I mean, this sounds like better for Saturday Night main event. Yeah. It sounds like what I am is what I am. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. wait. I, don't I know have never heard this song in my life. I no. know. I didn't even recognize the chorus, so I don't know what it. What what happened? Can I get, can I get to the chorus? But it was 12 weeks on the chart, so yeah. people, people must have liked it. All right. I told you it'd be hard. Number yep. eight. Uh, By the way, the uh, the Animotion song that was the wrestling theme was that song Obsession. Obsession. That, You're my yeah. obsession. Yes. Yep. Oh my obsessed. That's the animation song I know. So Yep. I think that's what one do I know you as well. want me to hear? Yeah. Number eight, uh fifteen last week on the charts, seven weeks to, in total. This is the highest it reaches. It's Soldier of Love by Donny Osmond. <laughs> <laughs> I I feel like I have heard this. It but I would not be able to opinion. sing it. Like I feel like you know I feel I've heard it in the ether, but I cannot name it but then when you play it i'm gonna be like oh yeah i've heard that song let me fast forward this a little bit here oh wow that's an interesting cover of that album oh i yeah this this is definitely like christian rock is he a christian soldier of or a mormon soldier of love right the osmonds are mormon i think correct correct? they are mormons yes and that is not a christian correct mormons christians are separate worlds I mean, yeah, in some levels, sure. <laughs> so I can't say Christian soldier of love. It's like oh, that's no, not, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess they subscribe to Christianity. On, that's in that lane of like term. Amy Grant and stuff like that. Yeah. that yeah. Mormons are Christians. They okay. are, okay. According to a standard dictionary definition of Christians as believers and followers of Christ, Mormons are Christians. Okay. Well, we might, I don't think we have a lot of Mormons who listen to the show because Utah is one of only four states in the country that has never listened to our has we've never had a listener from that state i think it's north Dakota, i'm gonna drive out utah. to utah and <laughs> and fire up a cts episode and change that stat north dakota utah <laughs> and two others that are escaping me right now i think montana is wyoming one, so. probably yeah no wyoming we've had we just we just do not play well on the great plains that's by far <laughs> our least less to do area i'm gonna have so. to go spread the gospel like the johnny mm-hmm. Appleseed of combing the stacks we've right? been listened to by 69 <laughs> non-united states countries but we've been not listened to by anybody in utah Jeez. or we're or like a college by now we we're represented by like 45 <laughs> of the 50 states and 25 countries or whatever no. so we don't 46 of the 50 action. states plus dc and puerto rico oh. so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. thank you john for cleaning that stack mm-hmm. yep all right number seven 
after all, by the way, the song nine and eight were terrible. Just yes. really awful well, songs. I don't know yeah. if it's gonna get better. Seven. Uh, last week it was nine, rising to number seven. This week, nine weeks on the chart. It's after all the love theme from Chances Are by Cher and Peter Cetera. Now I had oh. to look up what chances. Like I feel are like was. I know what this sounds like. <laughs> after like because I know all the life is something. You we no, I feel, you know the, it. No, I, I know the song. I know yeah, the words. You know it. Yeah. yeah, you're singing it right. Go After ahead. So yeah, you're singing like it. Peter Cetera, it. though, right? So Peter Cetera is kind of like, just another day without you, right? Like, that's uh, like, yep. so you have to sing what Matt's doing. You got it, Matt. Wow. Don't fuck him as a you. Yeah. I remember that movie, chances are. Yeah. Because it was like one of those movies that was... For some reason, I have a distinct memory of random movies that were on the pay-per-view preview channel between, like, yes. 1988 and 1991, and that was one of those movies that was on it. So. Yes, uh, this sounds like the perfect movie for that category. It has uh, stars Robert Downey Jr. and Sybil Shepard, and uh, there's an incest element to it, so take that for what you will. He I remember di- he the... dies and comes back and then starts the kind of in the attic. I was going to say, I remember like a May-December ghost relationship <laughs> so seemed weird. to be what it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In- oh, so they were related. Yeah, he starts being attracted to his daughter or something, but he's dead Whoa. and like re- is reincarnated in somebody else's body. It's so bizarre. What? Well, his daughter's I don't even not Sybil Shepherd, right? Sybil <laughs> Shepherd would have been older than Robert. Robert, right? Or am I... Unless Robert Downey Jr. was dead and he was just reincarnated as like his younger self. Christopher McDonald's in it, who Shooter McGavin and Happy Gilmore. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You eat pieces of shit for breakfast? (laughs) What is with the incest angles? Like, because, you know, Back to the Future had a little bit of that too, right? So late 80s was a weird... Was a wild time. Mary Stuart so. Masterson's also in it. I think Sybil Shepherd. That's is. probably who he had it is his daughter, right? <laughs> well, Mary let's, at least in Back to the Future, his mom didn't know she was his mom. So I mean, you know, yeah. Mary it, Stuart Masterson's the short-haired blonde girl, right? Who was like the girl next correct. door type. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Josh, that's a Josh's movie corner coming up in, in your that's future. That's a movie lost to time, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> what was for, the movie that Mary reason. Stuart Masterson played like a mechanic chick in? And then it was <laughs> the no 80s? Idea. Are you was talking about e- the... Just one of the guys? Was that was that her? Or am I mixing that up with something else? Oh, jeez. I, I don't um, know. Okay, sorry. We, we can okay. leave that are you ta- later. You're not talking about Some Kind of Wonderful, are you? That's what I was thinking. The Some John Kind Hughes of Wonderful. Yes. Mm-hmm. Movie. Yes. Uh, directed by Howard Deutsch. She was also in Lee Thompson. She was also in Fifty Fried Million Deutsch Marks, Josh. Benny and June. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. I need one million Deutsch Marks. <laughs> Name right. that movie. Oh God. What? Freddie got me. fingered. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Continue>. Jesus. <laughs> All right. A a song that I uh, number six on the charts this week. A song that I think John. Noted was a favorite of his at one point mm. to me. Um, last week it uh, was number seven. It's been 13 weeks on the chart, and it is Second Chance by 38 Special. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, my heart needs a second chance. Don't say I'm sorry. I just can't say goodbye. My heart needs a second chance. A nice. lot makes the sound. Oh, wow. Right? Nice. Yeah. Nice job. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there yeah. you go. Yep. You would high. never know that was 38 special, like ever, because it sounds nothing like like Hold On Loosely or um, mm-hmm. 
what's the other uh big 38 special song um hold on loosely and um god I'm, i know the song yeah exactly yeah uh hold on loosely is that the same song yeah it's the same song still caught up in you there you go still that's caught it. up in you yeah that, that sounds nothing girl. like oh yeah. that's on yeah, that we should have done nothing. that one <laughs> That sounds nothing like second. Second chance, we they talked about in the thing that apparently I was the only person on the show that ever went to a roller rig because that was a roller rig song. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I mean, it's kind of like a Since ballad, Since you've been gone, I've <laughs> made a mess. Something. This heart needs a second chance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Number five. Uh, ten, uh, nine weeks on the chart, rising from number 10 last week. It's. Paul Abdul's Forever Your Girl. Oh, I wanted to cover this album. I'm really pissed we didn't cover this album. She's got a lot of hits on that album. I'm forever your girl. Hey, baby. You got to remember. That's probably the fifth best song. That's probably the fifth best song on that album. Because like I think probably Straight Up is the best. Or Cold Hearted, which is like one of the greatest music videos ever. Is that Opposites the, Attract is was Cold on Heart, that one. Cold Hearted is the one where they do the Bob Fosse uh, yes. video. Yeah, that one's and they And yeah, the, the square, like yeah. people come in and then they sex <laughs> yes. up the dance. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that and video the guy's like great. pulling his collar and like, yeah. And the one woman's getting horny without, yep. you know, like while it's going on. Yeah, that's an yeah, awesome video. She is, uh, she is great in that. She's a great dancer. Um, we should have covered that album. If we do a bonus episode, we're covering that album. <laughs> Sounds good summer. to me. Mm-hmm. All yeah. right, number four, a song... We all know, uh, ten weeks on the chart, uh, dropping from number three last week. Matt, you could take the lead on this one if you want. Funky Cole Medina by Tone oh. Loke. <laughs> <laughs> well, Wait, first I of all, let's co- talk about let's talk about what the the uh, sample is on that one, right? Do you guys know the sample on that one? It's an album we covered already, isn't it? Oh, Jamie's crying. Oh, that's right. Yep. I know the other one, but Funky Cole Medina. That's I. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. I know Wild Side better. John, you do Funky Cold Medina. I don't, I, cool. I don't, I don't think. Uh, uh, so I, was, I always think a wild uh, wild thing. Darren Air. So go up the bit. There's that Funky Cold Medina. <laughs> I can't. I don't know the lyrics leading up to it, though. I just I know. know the chorus and that Jamie's crying right there. So I, Yeah, I get it caught, yeah. I get it mixed up with Wild Thing also. Yeah, it's, no, I th- it's like oh, that's dun, wild dun, thing. Dun, no, dun. I want Funky Cole Medina. Hang on. Yeah, I was about to say it, that's I wild funky... thing, right? I mean, the chorus is the same basic. Yeah, yeah it's like the same thing. <laughs> it is. Or no, is this? This is not. This is. Is this the Jamie's crying one? Yeah. It is. It's the same beat as Wild Thing. It's the same exact beat, basically. And the chorus is almost the exact same too. Funky Cole Medina. So yeah, yeah, wild thing is wild thing is wild thing, and then Funky Cole Medina is Funky Cole Medina. It's like basically the same thing. Yeah, he sings it the same way. Mm-hmm. All right, number three. Tone uh, look, by the way, stellar acting performance in what incredible 1990s comedy? Surf Ninjas. Com- oh no, no, no. <laughs> I was I liked him in Heat. He's I in was Surf big, Ninjas. I was a big Schneider. fan of his. I was a big fan of his work uh, in Ace Ventura, especially when Jim Carrey oh, right. talks out of his ass to to uh, Tone Look. <laughs> so, yes, uh, mm-hmm. listeners, if you 
That's a perfect summation of John's sense of Let me ask you a question, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> we've got we've got Freddy Got Fingered and yeah. uh, Ace Ventura. Yep. They're very uh, different movies, actually. One's <laughs> sort of like a deconstructed movie, and the other, there's nothing deconstructed about it at all. So, is Tone, yeah. Tone Look the voice in Bebe's kids? Is that what... <laughs> do you guys Probably. remember that movie? Yes, okay. I vaguely. Yes. <laughs> we've got number three this week, Rising. Last week was number eight, eight weeks on the chart. Real Love by Jody Watley. <laughs> I'm searching yeah. for a real love. Do, do, no, that's do, Mary do, J. Blige. Do, 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 but this, uh, she covers the song, I think. Do, do, do. Wait, oh. you're singing Mary J. Blige's real, real love. love. I'm searching for a real Wait, no. which one is it by Josh? Again, you're singing Mary J. Blige's <laughs> real love, which doesn't come out till like 1992. No, isn't that a cover of Mary J. Blige? I don't know. I don't believe so. Josh, oh, okay. who's the artist? Jody, Jody Watley. Watley. I know she had a zillion hits. I just, I don't know many, Jody. I, I think it's, I'm searching for a real love, baby. Oh. Right? Is it that one? Yes, it's that one. Yep. Okay. Yes. Okay. So John's knowledge song. of 80s R&B. I'm <laughs> searching for a real love, baby. I believe that's the chorus, right? Go to the chorus. Yeah. See if I'm right. All right. Hang on. Hang on. Yeah. I, had it. I don't know how far I have to fast. Video directed by David Fincher. I'm seeing. Mm. Yeah. I had to think for a second. Yep. Hang on. I love how Matt sings Mary J. Blige. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw I heard real love. I was yeah, like, and he kept singing it over and over again like it was going to make it. So it's like, yeah, it's, this is definitely the song I was singing. Yep. No, you were singing something different, John. Oh, was I? Okay. okay. You were wrong, too. So different. Yeah. yeah, I was wrong, too. So your knowledge of 90s R&B is as good as mine, yeah. apparently. What's the real I've love I was singing? Song. By the oh, way, no. that is an incorrect statement, but I'll let it go. <laughs> All right, number two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we covered this song. So who before? sings that? I'm searching for a real love. I thought I pulled that one out, but I guess not. <laughs> now I'm curious. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Ten Josh, weeks Josh, on the chart. Going. Yep. Last week, uh, holding strong at number two, it's "I'll Be There for You" by Bon Jovi. Off of that album <laughs> oh, that we talked. I, I think this time you're really leaving. <laughs> I heard your suitcase say goodbye. But as my broken heart lies bleeding, you say true love, it's suicide. You say you cried a thousand rivers, and now you're swimming for the shore. I think I sang that at summer camp once. Is that that the I'll be there for you, these five words I swear for you? Is that the song? Yeah. Yeah. When you breathe, I want to be the air for you. I'll be. Uh, I'm Searching for a Real Love is by Mary J. Blige. Yeah. You guys are just both singing it differently. No. <laughs> I'm Searching for a Real Love is by Mary J. Blige, too. No, well, that's, that's what the zoom. No, is... real, real, real love is real love. I'm searching for a real love. Yeah. Someone to hold my heart to. I was singing a different song. My right, song I'm is more like Google a deeper it. voice. I'm searching for a real love, baby. Are you it's sure like it's real love and not new love? It's new love. Maybe it's I'm new love. Maybe it's new love. New... Yeah, that's yes. why it doesn't appear. Hang on. Hang okay. on. Yeah. <laughs> for a new love. See, Google doesn't like it when you yeah. type in the wrong okay. words. Gotcha. For a new bad. love, baby. I was extrapolating out a song hoping I was right. Waiting on bated breath here. That is mm. Jody Watley. Okay. I'm waiting so for I got, for I, a new Wait, so you were singing the right song, but the wrong I was singing the, Well, <laughs> She's got two like, songs called yeah. Real Love. Oh. Yeah. What? That's why, 
Yeah. This is okay. looking for a real love. It, uh, there's real love, and then there's looking for a real. So I was like half wrong. For a new love. Well, Can we admit that I was half, half wrong? wrong. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I moved back to fifty. Yeah. All right. She's she's searching and looking for real and new loves. So that's, she's got a very similar theme. So all okay. right. And wrapping you take up. back some of the vitriol on me there, Matt, instead of shitting all over me. I'll take so, I'll take yeah. back half of it. Okay. We've got uh, last week uh, number one spot, eight weeks on the chart. Last week also number one, holding strong. It's like a prayer by Madonna, an album that we talked about. <laughs> well, I mean, so, I don't even know if we need to sing this. Well, we, we sang don't. it during the show so much. Life but, you know. is a mystery. <laughs> Josh, Josh gotta sing the hits. <laughs> I'll sing it. Gotta, Everyone but, just stand alone. Let's each try to do our Madonna. <laughs> like, what, what I, do your Madonna, Matt? Like an imitation I don't of have, it, like rock best though. Don, I have Matt just singing Madonna, which is right. I hear you call oh. my name. That's like every other and Matt. And it feels like home, home, yeah. just like a prayer. Oh, your voice can take goes. me there. Good job. Life is a mystery. Everyone's so stand alone. I hear you call my name, and it feels like home. Nah, all right. Average. Yeah, average. I don't have a good Madonna. How long did that song stay at number one, Josh? Do you have that? 70 weeks. It should have been been for, (laughs) yes, that's what I was going to say. That's a good question. It says eight weeks on the chart. I don't know if that means eight weeks up to this point or Mm. if that's in total. Yeah, it should have been on longer. Yeah. Anyway, what we really should have done is have Matt try to sing like the soul singer, Nikki, whatever her name is, who sings the gospel part. <laughs> ah, take you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, that, that wraps up the 80s for us in uh, Matt and John Sing the Hits, so I can't wait for the 90s. I predict more and more hits will be known in the 90s. The Billboard will be good, and then you could do like the modern rock charts. That would be funny. <laughs> like, just There's so, so many charts we could do that love and knowledge, so good nice. stuff. Well... Buzz clip time. We're gonna let Matt run this one, I think, this week to keep moving around the uh, the flow, so to speak. Enter into the buzz. buzz. Oh, so we've got some buzz clips. So uh, there's two sure choice, do. two tasty buzz clips this week. The first one comes from uh, a CTS. Well, it's, it's gonna be legend, I guess. I, we've covered several of their albums. It's Morrissey. So after he left quit the disbanded maybe as a better term the smiths mm-hmm. he came out well with he would movies. argue johnny marr disbanded the band oh would he okay to leave yes okay mm-hmm. well then man, i'm sure morrissey wasn't was was pretty much okay with that don't sue us turned morrissey out, no, he, yeah, was, he was very famously not okay with that but then like once it happened he's like we're never getting back together again yeah. so yeah. so he had uh, a hit single suede head and uh and that's our first buzz clip for this week so um do you know you this guys, song's about um, it's about him. Yeah, it's about him walking around <laughs> Indiana, going to James Dean's gravesite. Correct. Do you know what a suede head is? It's yeah, a guy with what, a that's what I was slick back about. hair, it's like gelled no. slick back hair. No, no, no. It is hair related. A suede head. I found this out for some things. A suede head is someone who shaves their head, mm. and then the hair is coming back on, like sort of like a peach fuzz type deal where the okay. hair is coming back. That's a. It's usually like a young male suede. So head. it's like a boss. Uh, sure, I, I've never heard that in my Remember life. The, oh, Brian Bosworth, the Boz, the haircut, the haircut where you had like a basically a shaved no, head, and then you had designs. It was like I'm pretty certain there's also like a little bit of homoeroticism like related to it, like oh. like young male shaved head type deal. Mm. I think that's a little piece of it as well. So 
Mm-hmm. So, so it doesn't have. It's not related to James Dean. I thought it was like James Dean fans or something. No, like Morrissey <laughs> loves James Dean, so he just made a video. I think about going okay. to James Dean's hometown. So, I yeah. see. Mm-hmm. I think reading the, the visuals there were unrelated to the song. Reading lyrics, literature so. in a barn in like the middle of January. I liked him trying to drive a tractor. That was yeah. That- <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was Morrissey anywhere in the heartland is perfect. (laughs) It's like, that's my favorite is like when you have Morrissey in the American heartland or my other all-time favorite, like Morrissey, like Mexican Idol, like is my all-time favorite, like Morrissey late, late career stage. Yeah. Yeah. In this video, he was playing the bongos with a bunch of cows around him. That was another great visual. Anyway, uh, I I definitely knew the song. I'm sure John did. Josh, did you, were you familiar with this song before this week? I don't think so. Oh, Although oh. I'm not sure how much solo Morrissey I I know. Um, mm. Was this well? His... The more you ignore him, Josh, the closer he gets. <laughs> okay. So mm-hmm. was this his biggest uh, solo album? I don't know. Uh, he's done pretty well as a solo artist. I don't. Yeah, it's, it's probably his highest selling solo album, but he's got a lot of hits. Like he has, like I just made the joke, but like the more you yeah. ignore me, the closer you get. Hairdresser on Fire is a pretty big song. Hmm. Like in the 2000s, he had some comeback albums that had some pretty awesome songs too. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, yeah, Josh, what did you think of the song? Yes, as far as the music goes, it sounds, you know, kind of similar to the Smiths. You still have his his crooning voice. I would say there is kind of an a missing element in the guitar space. I, there's no Johnny Marr there. I I feel like I can pick up on that in terms of like the richness of the the guitar sound but it's still an upbeat um really upbeat catchy song and um i i really enjoyed it and it it seems like a good continuation to what you know as a solo artist from from the smiths i think it captures kind of you know continues on what morrissey is all about and um and uh captures his voice well and um if you like Morrissey, like his singing, you should definitely listen to this song. Um, uh, now, see, I disagree. I think this sounds a lot like The Smiths. And it even has, like, if I remember correctly, I think Stephen Street, the guy who did Strange Ways, um, is the producer for this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to say on this album that I don't know if this or the later, or the Your Arsenal, the later one, or... Bona Drag, Viva Hate, they're all kind of the same one. I don't know if uh, Andy Rorick and Mike Joyce are on this one or not. I can't remember. Um, but to me, this is, I, I love this song. I think it's a really good song. I think it's kind of Morrissey at his best. It's mm-hmm. really interesting lyrically. I mean, he's full on like ambiguous, like sex symbol here is what he's kind of going for here. There's a, there's a lot of like romanticism in this. Um, Definitely. That it's got through. a, it's got a great chorus. It's got a great bridge. Um, I, I, I think it's a really well constructed pop song. Um, and at the time this came out on Viva Hate, I mean, I, I think this was released with Hairdresser on Fire, if I remember correctly. And if you were to listen to those two songs, I think you probably would be like, you know, Morrissey's going to pick up right where he left off because those mm. are two A tier type singles, for my opinion. Um, I'm pretty sure, Matt, if I remember correctly, you're a big fan of this one too, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. This yeah. I knew this mm-hmm. song. My brother put this on a mix for me years ago, and yeah, it's great. I, I, I'm I probably more with you, John. I don't know if I see a ton of difference, although I see what Josh is saying. It's there, It's not as – there's a lot of strings on this. Um, there's a lot of uh, – there's like a 
there's a sound that sounds like it could be a guitar, but I also think it could be synths as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the bass is kind of up front. So that's a very Smiths-esque part of it. But yeah, it's just melody all over the place. Uh, his voice sounds great. Um, it's got, it does have a great, great chorus. It's bouncy. It's catchy. Uh, and uh, it absolutely makes my buzz bin. Um, for, for, you know, I, I don't know a ton of Morrissey solo albums. I know a lot of his songs here and there. So um, I'm sure that there's plenty on this record that I would like. So, um, I mean, it's kind of, this is a weird one because it's, it's like, I know the song and it's not like I'm hearing it for the first time going, oh, now I want to like, listen, I, I'm really curious as to what the rest of this record sounds like. I can, I think I can kind of guess if there's already, he's yeah. a little bit of a known entity at this, yeah, that, at this point. It's by far the most Smith sounding of all of his solo albums. Mm. I would say Viva Hate, mm-hmm. his first one. It's like I said, there's this one, there's Hairdresser on Fire. There's oh there's Margaret on the guillotine is on that one which is about Margaret Thatcher and it's freaking hilarious as a song but um, <laughs> it, spoiler alert Morrissey was not a big fan of Margaret Thatcher you know they they named an album the Queen is dead so right. you know you know this takes on royalty but yeah um, I, I'm with I'm with you guys I really like this song as well it's in my buzz bin and yeah it's just a the next iteration you know post Smiths of Morrissey it's not like he's reinventing who he is as an artist or anything he's not going in some other direction oh. it's like a continuation in some ways oh by it's the way I, co- I completely forgot every day is like sunday is on this album oh, too which song. is another massive hit and has been covered now, like a bajillion times yeah. now here's a question i have because it does these those songs that I, I know that one as well i mean they there is very smith's like qualities to the sound of the song but Morrissey didn't write the the music with this that was johnny marr who wrote the music with the smiths correct and so who's yep. steven street like, is is writing the music for the mm-hmm. Morrissey solo records. Yep. In fact, I okay. just so that I could start to see if the sh- shit I'm spitting out was correct and stuff. Um, I just am looking at it right now and I was lazy. I went to all music. It says all lyrics written by Morrissey. All music is composed by Stephen Street. So that's okay. easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wait, so yep. what Stephen Street is he was he related to the Smiths in some way? So he wasn't he, in the band. So he's he was he did work with the streets or with the uh, uh strange ways right was i think <laughs> okay. the album he did right and i think he first came on with like heaven knows i'm miserable now and stuff like that he was also involved with um i'm pulling him up now so i can make sure i'm right yep uh blur he did their albums and the cranberries he did albums huh. by them too. i like those bands yep. too and he's also worked they said this i did not know this but he also worked with baby shambles and the kaiser chiefs as well I so. like the kaiser chiefs i like mm-hmm. i'm a big stephen street fan i'm just hearing of him tonight and uh thumbs up on <laughs> yep. stephen street he did i'll put, I'll put him in my buzzman can i put stephen street goes in my buzzman <laughs> yeah, <sure>. so <laughs> yep. little action figure Street. <laughs> that's right <laughs> Yep, he did uh, Park Life and Modern Life is Rubbish uh, by Blur, which mm-hmm. we're going to cover both of those. He did the first two Cranberries albums, which we'll cover at albums. least one yep. of those. Mm-hmm. He did both this one, Viva Hate and Bona Drag. He did Queen is Dead and Strange Ways for the Smiths. And he did Employment and Yours Truly Angry Mob for the Kaiser yeah. Chiefs. So, that's yep, some good stuff right there. Like. That's, a mm-hmm. good, that's a good resume. John, yeah. are you are you as big a fan, Morrissey fan as you are a Smiths fan, or is there kind of a difference? In your I mind? look at them; they're different. They're yeah. di- this is really the only one that sounds like the Smiths. I I really like the album Your Arsenal, which comes out in 1992. I think he works with uh, David Bowie's guitarist. Uh, 
I was going to say Mick Mark Ronson. Ronson, but I think it's Mick Ronson, right? Yeah, Mick yeah. Ronson on that one produces that. It's like very clammy. Um, oh, I'm nice. a big fan of that one. Um, Voxel and I was, I think, his biggest U.S. solo one. That's the one with probably the single you'd know is The More You Ignore Me, The Closer I Get. Um, and then he made some really good albums in the mid-2000s, too. He made an album called You Are the Quarry, which I really like. Um, it's very glammy. It's just, it's, he also always has great backup bands in the 2000s. Like, he finds these great, almost touring musicians who are always super tight and great. Mm. So um, mm. there's a lot of good stuff. I know we'll cover Vauxhall and I in the 90s, and we're going to cover You Are the Quarry in the 2000s. So you'll get a couple mm. uh, Morrissey nice. solo albums. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. But yeah, so, this is. Right. A, I mean, I know this album, so it's a little bit of a cheat. But if I'd heard this in 1988, this would absolutely have made me want to hear Morrissey's solo yeah. album. Mm-hmm. So three, three buzzbins. That's a uh, that's a CTS buzzbin. Yeah, affirmative there. So right on. All right, and the second song we have tonight is the Cowboy Junkies with Sweet Jane. It's a cover of the Velvet Underground song of the same name, and. Uh, I think we talked a little, this is going to be interesting because this is a cover and somebody said recently talking, maybe it was on our episode, John, did we talk about a cover covers in general? Like, is it better to do a cover right. like the same or is it better to do it differently? Like how do we view covers and stuff like that? So I think it's you pretty safe. We talk to, about it on the show. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's pretty safe to say that this is one of the covers that sounds pretty much like the original. Um, but John, what was your take on this on this song from your? My take was like this didn't need to be made. Like I didn't. <laughs> there was nothing that added to. It. I mean, it wasn't bad necessarily, mm-hmm. but there was nothing about this. I guess outside of the fact that there's female vocals, right? That in any way reimagine this or move the bar on this. My my takeaway after this was. I want to go back and listen to the Velvet Underground version of this, which is probably the worst yeah. thing you could say after a cover. Um, it was hard for me to figure out what the buzz for this would have been too, because I'm like, okay, when you're doing an attempt at a faithful Velvet Underground cover, do I want to hear you? Or is it like, oh, that's a good song. Who's that by? Oh, that's the Velvet. It makes me want to hear the Velvet Underground, right? So the buzz for me is, let me go back and explore this crazy (laughs) underground band called the Velvet Underground, as opposed to the Cowboy Junkies. So uh, you like if they had done it differently or, a different style. I could see how it lands in there, but a relatively faithful cover of a song that was already good. And I would argue the original is better. Um, I don't know if it moves the bar for me. And so from that end of things, nothing about it made me want to listen to the rest of the Cowboy Junkies album. So um, it doesn't end up in my buzz bin, mm. if I'm being honest. Yeah. Yeah. Not only did it need to not be made, it didn't need to be heard by me because I hated this song. And mm. Oh, damn. It, it, it it was it seemed completely pointless i knew almost right off the bat that it was a cover of velvet underground it just has that i I don't know that essence of velvet underground to it that i could tell and i couldn't understand this really landed with a thud with me i couldn't understand what the buzz was with this band this did not make me interested i really i really hated kind of like the monotone um uh you know portrayal of the song i thought it was going to keep was going to build to something, but it just kept going into like nothingness. I mean, there's kind of a different part at the end of the song um, that she sings, but, um, and then the video really didn't do it any favors also with them. It, it matches the song in terms of tone and like feel with them just like singing on a 
with like a black backdrop and like cutting between and it's the same the the guitarist is just playing the same guitar um you know chord over and over throughout the entire song it doesn't change it's so i i i didn't did not like this one and um it, it makes me resent the buzzbin. So, <laughs> wow, the wow, entire buzzbin. I was not thing. nearly. I was Wait, not Josh. nearly as vitriolic in disliking this song as Josh was. Josh, so did you hate the Velvet Underground version of this? No, no, I like the Velvet Underground. So version. okay, but how? I, I, it's the same song. That is a little you, bit weird. It is. It is. I, the I was thinking song. the same thing. You might, I, and I, I agree. I, this did not need to be made. This is a perfect example of like, it's like a band that's trying to ride the coattails of another band. Um, that's I cooler guess, and hip. Yeah. That yeah, has been annoyed me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but like, and I, Cowboy Junkies had other songs and you know, that that's something that would have been, I would have been more interested in it. Right. And so this, this is not going to make my buzz been either. It's just like, okay, it's fine. But like to say that this song, I hate this song, but I'm okay with the Velvet Underground <laughs> song. It doesn't register with me because it's the same song. Well, no, I guess in the context of the buzz bin, it really doesn't like make me interested in the band and doesn't. That's fair. I don't think it captures maybe what the band actually is i i haven't heard right. any other cowboy junkie songs so i don't know but or don't you know by by name but it that's why i don't like it it's not like this if this and i agree with you guys like a cover if it's the cover is the same then like don't make the cover make do something different like if you're gonna do a cover yes. of it um unless you're like some sort of high school band or something but like well because the know. original has like uh like a chorus and backing vocals and stuff. Yeah, and yeah. there's a little bit more going, I mean, like you said, there's one guitar part. That's the part in the original song too, but there's more instrumentation around. The, right. I think it's from loaded, right. was the album it was on. So yeah, I thought choosing to strip this down, it's hard to unstrip down. Lou Reed, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, let's, let's do a more stripped down version of Lou Reed's vibe. So yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm kind of with you guys. I, yeah, this it's it's fine. It's it, I like the song, so I like I I because they didn't do that much different. I like their version of it, but it's definitely it's it's not needed. I I agree with what you're saying. Actually, I can say this about the Cowboy Junkies. So they did. Um, there was a a tribute album to Graham Parsons back in the the I don't know if it's the '90s or early 2000s called uh, Grievous Angel. Um, and um. And Cowboy Junkies did a cover of a Graham Parsons song called Ooh Las Vegas. Mm. And they took, but that's like a great cover because they totally took this hunk, this like straight up country song and made it like into like a trip hop song. And it mm. sounds really, really cool. So like that's, they do have, I can vouch for them doing something totally different and making it sound interesting and cool making the, putting their own spin on it. But you're not going to go, for, you're not going to go to Sweet Chain for that. Go to, go but, to Ooh Las Vegas. That's a much well, let better me, representation. Let me kind of like, Imagine if, like, instead of the, the Strokes, another band who has, you know, Velvet Underground-y elements, right? We'll use one that we know right there for sure, right? If, this, if, like, the Strokes had come out and their first song, you know, instead of Last Night was, like, Who Loves the Sun, right? Or something like that by the Velvet Underground. It's like, my first take of them is this band sounds like the Velvet Underground and they're right. going to cover one of their <laughs> famous songs. It's, you kind of, like, have to grow into being big enough to cover it, right? I mean, yeah, you could be like Alien Ant Farm and cover Smooth mm -hmm. Criminal, right? But that was a different deal, yes. right? Like it kind of was like a gimmick and it worked because it was. It was like a rock yeah. sort of... And like, that's what I'm saying. If you're going to have your first impression be a cover, you kind of have to come at it from a different angle, right. was this you? Was this their first single? 
Was, yeah, like, was this the first time people were coming out, like, hearing of them? I'm not a, a, a historian of the cowboy uh, yeah, they, I'm just they, saying, they, maybe they maybe they were established already in some way with a previous single. This maybe this wasn't the. I, I don't totally you think we would saying. have to know it though? Like we would have. We know a lot of alt rock in this era. Potentially, right? and, but potentially, but there was other. There's plenty of well, stuff we didn't know. There's up. a pl- There were plenty of buzzbin stuff that's like I never heard of this before. You are know, they? So. Are they trip hop in general? Is that like their? I think I remember them having a song on like a snowboarding game soundtrack or something like that. That's probably that. true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this very well could have been their first. They're band. more of like would, an I, alt country band, aren't they? The Cowboy no, Junkies? No, this, no. Is the, no. this is their second Well, according album. to Wikipedia, I just pulled it up. The alt Cowboy country? Junkies are an alt country and folk rock band formed in Toronto, Canada. <laughs> I, have, so. I could say this. I've never heard. Okay. I don't. I, I, I've never heard the Cowboy Junkies do a alt country song so i guess i don't their the song songs mixes heard, blues country folk rock and jazz are we thinking of another band what is happening <laughs> that's weird yeah this is off their second album um which all music says is their album pick so i don't know but they've okay. been put, continuing to put out albums, so they just put out an album this year so i don't know um I'm not going to judge their whole their whole vibe by one song. I'm not going to shit all over the Cowboy Junkies. They may have some great stuff, but if you're going to have a buzz clip, and yeah. that's my thing, it it doesn't rise yeah. to that level. So no harm, no foul. But this did not serve what all we right. said is the main purpose. I'm mm-hmm. going to have to listen to some Cowboy Junkies because I remember hearing singles. I would not have ca- characterized that as old country. So that could just be maybe they were. Uh, hey, it's Wikipedia, so. It's Wikipedia, so. But that's also what all music is classifying them as. Yeah, I'm sure it's accurate, but I'm just saying, like, it could be one of those things where their singles were not, they kind of deviated from their traditional thing to maybe to get more radio play. Um, Mm. So I am curious now. Now I now I do want to listen to Cowboy Junkies. I started off saying no, and now I want to. I have. (laughs) They were influenced by post-punk bands like Joy Division and Susie and the Banshees, and jazz like Ornette Coleman. John Coltrane and Cecil Taylor, as well as early blues, blues musicians like John Lee Hooker and Robert Johnson. Hmm. So there you go. That's their Weird. their uh, influence pool. Oh, you know who I I think I might have been confusing them with Letters to Cleo. Okay. Well, the one line anyway. uh, description of them in all music is Canadian quartet whose spare languid sound was an evocative bridge between alternative <laughs> rock and Americana. So I don't know. Okay. Spare languid sound does not work for me usually. Um, it can work but, for me, so yeah. I reserve the right to. Well, I'm going to be listening to a ton of albums during our hiatus, so I will <laughs> throw a cowboy junk. I will throw yeah, right. a cowboy junkies album on there, and I rank them. So I'll All let right. you know what I think. Mm-hmm. Report back. Cool. Yep. Right on. Okay, so that's three yeses for the uh, Morrissey Suedehead track, yes. mm-hmm. and three noes for Cowboy Junkies uh, Sweet Chain unnecessary cover of Sweet Chain. Correct. And when we come back. The buzz bin will be in the 90s, guys. Mm-hmm. 1990 to be exact. Yeah. So, I'm excited about that. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Well, that All right. Moves An hour later, let's roses. start talking about <laughs> records. No, it's Tom <laughs> yeah, Petty man. first, my man. Oh, it's Tom Petty first? Tom All Petty, right. yeah. Yep. Tom Petty's Full Moon Fever. I will be covering this in the opening montage. Uh, I think I had Running Down a Dream in the opening montage, and now you're going to hear a clip from I Won't Back Down.
Full Moon Fever comes in at number 82 in the 1980s on Best Ever Albums, number 9 in 1989, number 542 of all time. It is Tom Petty's highest rated album on Best Ever Albums, whether it's solo or with the Heartbreakers. Uh, it did make Rolling Stones list. Actually, all the uh, albums that we're covering tonight made Rolling Stones list. Uh, comes in at number um, uh, 298 in Rolling Stone. And Tom Petty is ranked as the number 184 uh, highest artist rating and best ever albums. All right, so we covered Tom Petty in a cold listen back in the 70s when we did Dan yes. the Torpedoes, but we haven't done any bio. And Traveling uh, Wilburys. And Traveling Wilburys, correct, but that was not a Tom Petty bio. Yeah. Uh, this is actually Tom Petty's debut solo album, but clearly he was a well-established artist with his band Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. So I'm going to go all the way back, and we're going to talk a little bit about his upbringing and, uh, the, the, and the Heartbreakers records prior to this. Oh, so um, this is Tom Petty without the Heartbreakers. This is Tom Petty without... Okay. Well, it's Tom Petty. Aren't they all playing on this anyway? Are, with just we'll, like Jeff we'll, get, we'll get to that. Okay. Mike, Campbell, Mike <laughs> yeah. Campbell is mainly... is he's, the, he's playing pretty much on every track. A couple of the other members play a little bit. Stan drummer does not play at all uh but it's essentially a tom petty uh solo record um hmm. because he intentionally did not have the rest of the band with him Got so it. um but it's so it's his first solo record but if you include all the other heartbreakers records it's his eighth okay. so there's been quite a bit of uh stuff that's happened prior to this the album was recorded uh between 1987 and 1988 and it was released on april 24th 1989 it's considered Tom Petty's commercial peak and was critically well regarded. It did peak in the U.S. at number three and number eight in the U.K. It sold over six million copies, and which makes it his second highest selling album behind 1993's greatest hits album, if you want to count that as, a, as an album. But to just give you a sense of like how Tom Petty records sell, uh, this one sold, again, about six million. The greatest hits album from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers sold almost over uh, almost 13 million. So it's wow. like double the amount is that the greatest hits record. So, uh, but this is his old, uh, highest selling studio record. Uh, he was born Thomas Earl Petty on October 20th, 1950 in Gainesville, Florida. Uh, he had a troubled relationship with his father. That's pretty much well documented in many interviews that he gave. His father was both physically and verbally abusive to Petty and his brother and his mother as well. Uh, he did have a close relationship with his mom and his and his uh, and his brother. Uh, however, and um, he did become interested in rock and roll when he met Elvis Presley when he was 10 years old. Apparently, Elvis was was filming a film in nearby Ocala, Florida, which we all know fairly well. <laughs> I uh, know Ocala. I, I know Ocala. I sell Ocala. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tom Petty's uncle was working on the set of that film and invited uh -huh. Tom to go to go check it out. And while he was there, he met Elvis briefly and decided, uh, I love rock and roll at that time. He actually went home and he traded a slingshot to some kid for a bunch of Elvis 45s. Oh, wow. Um, so. Deal. And then um, Elvis got him interested in music to begin with. But like many other artists we've covered, uh, he decided to be an actual, actually to pursue music when he saw the Beatles play Ed Sullivan. And uh, he was like, that's it. I'm going to start my own band, which he did a few years later. He started a band called The Epics, which they later changed that name to Mud Crutch. Um, and in that band included future heart heartbreakers Mike Campbell on guitar and Ben Montench on uh, keyboards. Uh, the band was pretty popular in Gainesville. Uh, they were signed to Shelter Records, and they relocated to L.A. Uh, but they didn't get very far because essentially they get they get out there and the record company, the people that they signed with said essentially they just wanted Tom Petty. They didn't want the rest of the band. They thought there were some weak links. And so uh, Mud Crutch broke up. 
Petty started reluctantly, you know, starting his career as a solo artist. Uh, uh, but shortly after that, Ben Montench had a couple of songs that he wanted to go record, and he invited Mike Campbell as well as some friends from Gainesville, who actually also happened to be in L.A. That was Stan Lynch on drums and Ron Blair on bass. And uh, so they started recording some of these songs by Ben Montench. And to get a little help on how to sing or how to do some vocals, uh, Tench invited Tom Petty over. And by the Tom Pet- by the time Tom Petty saw what the band could do, he realized that this was a stronger band and said, okay, this is going to be my backing band. So it's kind of a weird little transition there because <laughs> some of the guys were already in Mud Crutch and they were just stayed with him. But the two weak links essentially were you know, cast to the wayside. And when he found Ron Blair and Stan Lynch, you know, realized that they were all gelling really well and, and, and the record company was a little bit more, was higher on, on that lineup. What, a, what an awkward situation for Tom. Yeah, <laughs> and it's actually interesting. So I watched that the, there is there is a, do, a really good documentary on Tom Petty called Running Down a Dream. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on, it's a, you can see it for free on, what is it, Tubi, Josh? Is that the, that's, yeah, yep. that's where. Actually, I had the DVDs, but the DVDs started skipping because that's what they do. So I had to find it online and that's where I found it on Tubi. So, but, um, but they did interview those other two guys and they were, they were, you know, they were talking about how kind of awkward that whole situation was. But, um, so, uh, so they, uh, Petty convinces them to go, I'll I'll go to his next uh, studio session. Um, and that's when they, you know, the record company, it was Denny Cordell, who's an English uh, producer who kind of signed them initially was impressed with that. And, uh, decided let's record an album, which they did. Their self-titled uh, album, for a debut album, was released in November of 1976, which includes the hits "American Girl" and "Breakdown." So, but it wasn't a hit right away. It became hits later on. Um, didn't sell too well. They actually did. They actually started off being pr- uh, pretty popular from the get-go in the UK and in England and in Europe. Um, so. Uh, they did record their second album, You're Gonna Get It. That was released in 1978. Uh, it was their first gold record. And then a um, and then so a legal dispute started, which would become kind of a thing for Tom Petty. Um, and gets getting involved. He's no, not known for not just his music, but just for fighting record labels for trying to screw him and other artists. But uh, essentially, Shelter's uh, distributor was sold to MCA Records, and Petty refused to transfer to another label. Uh, he claimed that he was forced to, to sign away his publishing rights in his original deal. Uh, he said that that was, you know, the way that they made him do that. He was kind of coerced, and it was illegal the way that they did it. So he um, ends up doing something that's kind of was 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 kind of a novelty then a new a new thing which was to file for chapter 11 bankruptcy which essentially makes the contracts that he signed null and void hmm. um and uh and then you know if if he won out in court if, if that if he won out in court they would re- render those contracts void but tom petty felt that he had a pretty good um a chance of, of doing that um it was also a huge move not just for him and his record company but for all record companies because if this wins out then other artists could do something similar because as we've talked about many times before lots of artists were getting ripped off by record companies uh back in the 60s and 70s um so uh so in, in order to pay for the legal bills they went on a brief tour called the uh the lawsuit tour and they also decided to hold their third record, which was Damn the Torpedoes Hostage, mm. until, you know, they basically would not release it, even though they had all these tapes. Actually, Tom Petty said, you know, if, if due to the, there was, a, there was one of the, the court came through and said that they would have the right, if they wanted to, to seize all the tapes that they were, that they were recording. 
Um, and so Tom Petty basically told one of his roadies, hey, go take, every time we record something, take the tapes away and hide them somewhere that I don't know where they are. So that, <laughs> therefore, if they call me on the stand, I can, I don't know where they are, Your Honor. I can't tell you where the tapes are. So he was very, um, very thorough and very intentional with, with the ways that he, uh, you know, approached this, these lawsuits. But eventually a settlement was, re- was reached. They released their third album, Damn the Torpedoes, in 1979, and that eventually went platinum. Uh, that included the hits Refugee and Don't, uh, Don't Do Me Like That, which was actually their first top 10 single. And for their fourth album, Hard Promises, the record company decided, because the last record did so well, that they were going to jack up the price of $1 from $8.98, which was the standard at the time, to $9.98. They did not tell Tom Petty about that, and Petty was not very happy. And again, he started vocally vocally, uh, you know, speaking his mind against this practice, cons- you know, basically saying, oh, the record company is just trying to make more money off of my fans and using my name to do it. You're not going to do that. And he made a big deal about it. Um, and eventually MCA capitulated. They decided against that price hike, and that was re- it was later reduced to um, $8.98. So Jeez, he's hard to Tom, man. He he won't back down, Josh. So <laughs> he's running down a dream. Yeah. Um, so around the so the tour the band is touring like crazy. They're exhausted, and and this time bassist Ron Blair decided he couldn't really put up with this anymore, and he decides just basically to leave the band and open up a bikini shop in Gainesville. Um, so he's <laughs> so, so. best part of the bio right there. Just yep. specifically a bikini shop. Yep. Yes. A, a bikini shop buys that out. And so he's uh, having the time of his life doing that. It was really, you know, said in the, do- in the uh, documentary that, you know, he would later go see plenty of Tom Petty shows and be like, you know what? I'm totally fine. I, I like what I'm, what I'm doing right now. So all those college uh, girls in bikinis. That's right. <laughs> that's right. So Petty was actually producing another album at the time by Del Shannon, which was a uh, artist from the, 50s i believe runaway right del shannon yeah. was that was yep. his big hit yeah well Good and song. that's yep and that actually was referenced in running down a dream uh and uh so when petty was working with del shannon he took notice of the bass player uh who was howie epstein and asked howie to come sit on a session with him and the heartbreakers it went so well that basically petty invited him to join the band despite del shannon begging him not to take his bass player but tom petty's like sorry dude I'm taking him. He's too good. So Howie Epstein joins the band. Uh, Del Shannon was kind of pissed about that. And um, they released their next record, which was called Long After Dark. That was released in 1982. And then their sixth album was Southern Accents, released in 1985, followed by a live album called Pack Up the Plantation Live. And then they were asked by Bob Dylan to join him on tour for, you know, that that went pretty well. They toured throughout, uh, you know, various countries and continents. And uh, from 1986 to 1987, they learned a lot from Dylan, including how to improvise during shows and how just to, you know, let let things just happen rather than just playing things by the book. Um, And then in 87, they also released another their seventh album, which is Let Me Up, I've Had Enough. Uh, Petty was not satisfied with this record, um, said that the title spoke for itself <laughs> and uh, decided he thought he might have might end up breaking up the band. Um, and uh, but then he went just decided, you know what, I'm just going to record a solo record. Um, and that kind of happened. This is right around the time that the Wilburys things happened. So he's basically recording uh, this album, Full Moon Fever, with Jeff Lynn, who he I think he ran into like he, he saw him like in traffic and like told him to pull over and said, Hey, I want to work with you. That type, like just random, randomly seeing Jeff Lynn on the street. And so Jeff Lynn's like, yeah, sure, sure. I'll work with you. Um, 
and then they go and record uh, at Mike Campbell Studio, which is so you basically this record is essentially Petty and Mike Campbell on guitar, um, Jeff Lynn on bass, and then they had a uh, they that brought in a drummer that they all that they all knew, uh, named by by the name of Phil Jones, and so that's basically the makeup of this. Benmont Tension, Howie Epstein did contribute a little bit, but not a whole lot. Um, and Roy Orbison and George Harrison also make appearances on this record as well. Oh, okay. um, so, yeah, but Lynch, Stan Lynch was didn't like this record at all. Neither did Howie Epstein. There was a, there was some tension in the in the Heartbreakers for Petty doing this. Um, there was some resentment from those members when they would play these songs live as the Heartbreakers. They felt like Stan Lynch said that he thought that he was kind of playing a cover song, you know, covers, you know, which it, that he didn't really have any input or really like all that much. Um, but Petty loved the recording process, said it was one of the best, most enjoyable of his career. I'll, um, you know, kind of a lot, almost doing a, the Wilburys thing where they were, record, you know, writing and recording songs in like a day and just putting it down and then working on the next song. Um, and uh, you can hear Jeff, Jeff Lynn's presence on this record. The production style is very distinctively Jeff Lynn. So that's become that's that's very apparent here. The Chris production. Um, it's and like the an record, electric light orchestra almost. It's got but. a little bit of that going on, sure. Yeah, the, she, the sheen of ALO. Um, funnily, oddly enough, the record company initially did not want to release this record as they heard no hit singles on it. Well, they're um, idiots. And, the, <laughs> and this, this would represent, we'll talk about this probably when we get to Wild Who are the ad wizards? Exactly. But needless to say, this was Tom Petty's last record with MCA. Um, and then speaking of lawsuits, uh, in January of 2015, Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne reached an agreement with Sam Smith. I forgot about this, but for the similarities between I Won't Back Down and Smith's song, Stay With Me. Yes. And uh, they, re they did receive writing credit for that song and a 12.5% royalty rate. Wow. Pe Petty later said that he didn't believe Sam Smith did this intentionally, basically saying, you know what, these things happen. Uh, Smith later claimed that he didn't even hear uh, he never even knew the song "I Won't Back Down" when he wrote uh, "Stay with Me," um, but he said it was just a coincidence. So they're kind of agreeing with that. Also, funny thing about that song: it's been played at countless political rallies, um, some of which, you know, <laughs> ended up in cease and desist letters by Tom Petty, most notably by Republican candidates such as George W. Bush and Donald <laughs> Trump. Uh, but lots of politicians love to play the song because they don't want to back down either. Um, so there you go. So there's a little bit of history of uh, Full Moon Fever. And um, I want to hear from John first. What are your thoughts on Tom Petty's debut solo album? I mean, can you not like this album? I mean, it's kind of, it's it's all the things, right? It's like the Tom Petty at his, I hesitate to say most pop because he's littered with pop songs. But later Tom Petty would become a, a different version right like mary jane's last dance wildflowers tom petty right is a different version of this and early tom petty and you know 80s tom petty is a slightly different vibe of this but still in the same lane this is kind of where it just seems like tom petty uh, you didn't say it explicitly matt but it does feel like this is tom petty saying okay I've made out, you know, I've made videos on MTV. I've had hits, but now I'm going to kind of go for that big pop magnum opus, right? And I'm going to bring in Jeff Lynne to just shimmer all over this album. And I'm going to write you're, the line you always say, right? Don't bore us, get to the chorus. Mm -hmm. And this album's yeah. filled with songs that 
line on that one. So I look at this album as two different albums, right? For people that might be listening, there's the album that you're going to know without even knowing it, right? With free falling and running down a dream and I won't back down and you're so bad, right? Those are songs that are played on classic rock radio to this day. And you probably have stumbled on to those songs. Uh, and then there's like the deeper cuts that there's quite a lot of them on this album that I really like. Yeah. Um, there also hilariously is, and I've always thought Tom Petty owes a little bit of a debt to the birds, but here he goes all the way into it, right? Cause mm-hmm. he's got a birds cover on this album, which made me laugh. And I was like, Oh wow. Tom Petty's actually doing a birds cover on this album. And it's, we talked covers earlier on this album and it is a very faithful birds cover. I think it's from Mr. Tambourine man. If I remember correctly, right. The, the bird birds cover. Yeah. Which is like early birds, like Gene Clark birds and the ringing jangly guitars, which I love. Um, you go back to season one and hear me talk about how I came to really love the birds in that season, um, are all over this, but yeah, this is a little bit at times like a throwback, to that 50s and 60s rock that has always influenced Tom Petty's work. And then you've got the Jeff Lynne element to it with the studio sheen. You've got the Tom Petty voice and choruses on this. You have elements of all of it. And it it congeals really well into, I'm not going to say a perfect pop album, but for 1989, I don't know if you can write an album that, that, to me, more clearly would have mass appeal because mm-hmm. it's going to appeal to classic rock fans. It's going to appeal to people that like rock music. But I mean, you've had the pump primed a little bit by things like um, Phil Collins and George Harrison's solo stuff at the end of the 80s. And mm-hmm. there's just a lot of this floating around, right? Like more mature artists right releasing mainstream pop around this time that is influenced by somehow the 50s 60s and 70s all at the same time with 80s recording techniques and i would say of all the things that we've covered this is the best version of that because the songs are undeniable tom petty sounds great the songs are tight these are songs that are clearly meant to be played live too which is another thing i want to mention um and I don't want to oversimplify it, but I, I don't think Tom Petty was trying to go real complex here. I think he was playing for both the front of the crowd and the back of the crowd and for the radio and just everything in between. Not that he wasn't before, but there's, and I don't say this in a negative way, but there seems to be a real calculation in terms of taking his sound and his appeal to the mass. Um, so yeah, easy thumbs up for me. Um, really enjoyable album. Um, if it was just the singles, it would be a thumbs up, but it's not just the singles. There's great cuts all the way to the end of this album. Mm -hmm. Um, zombie zoo, the last song (laughs) is a very unique song for Tom Petty on this album. Um, and because it sounds so different, it's refreshing. It almost makes you want to hear two or three more songs. So you don't get, at least I didn't get worn out by the album because even though tom petty always is tom petty um it doesn't feel like 12 tom petty standard songs with no deviation there's a lot of variation on this as well and sometimes sheeny production can turn me off um and i remember listening on my own to the elo out of the blue album which had some great songs but it was so long and by the end of it it it's like i don't think i need to hear anything else by elo ever right (laughs) this isn't that feel you know i think by now 
Jeff Lynn has either figured out like what too long is like, or he just in the hands of other musicians, right? Like his, his uh, special sauce is more effective. So yeah, easy thumbs up for me on this one. Yeah, I'm with you. I obviously knew all of the singles off this. Although if you're so bad was a single, I didn't know that song, but I really liked it. Um, it, the, it, yes, it was a single. It was the fifth single released. Okay. A Face in a Crowd was also a single on this, oh, but okay. I think that this is mostly known for Won't Back Down, uh, Running Down a Dream, and Free Fall. And yeah. Those are the ones that got the extended play. Yeah. Yeah, Tom Petty, I don't, he really like cracked the code on this one. I feel like he's he's tapping into some sort of like American classic rock sound because all of these songs have either like guitar parts or chords or something that just remind you of other songs on some like primal level, but they like have the Tom Petty like spin on them and he just makes them his own and he just has this ability to to craft like really good pop songs with like really catchy courses and like this great like classic like guitar sound to them and they're they're simple but they're like well done and the simplicity is not to mean that it's like easy by any means but there is like a there is like a well well uh oiled machine here i guess as an, another metaphor um it, it just the whole album kind of feels like it harkens back to to classic rock i feel a whole lot better sounds like a beatles song it's almost like i don't know he's channeling the beatles in some way and then there's like all well, these that's other... the bird song oh okay i didn't catch that uh, when john said it was you, a yeah you didn't recognize that I, I even if i didn't know it was the birds i would have said it's <laughs> tom petty doing a bird's yeah homage it's so a bird song yeah but yeah so th- same thing though like really i mean that's the cover of that but there's other songs um that are you know easy to sing to and have these guitar parts like the apartment song and um, a mind with a heart of its own it just has these kind of recognizable um, guitar sounds i really enjoyed this album because you know it's strong throughout and the songs outside of the big singles are also good like john said like love is a long road which is the third track i really like that one you're so bad the apartment song zombie zoo got in my head every time i heard that and the album is like a perfect length for me too it does leave you wanting more and all of the songs kind of have a different uh flavor to them in some way um i don't know if you guys noticed but a mind with a heart of its own references micanopy too i saw that in the lyrics and that was funny <laughs> he said he's been to micanopy that. in the in the lyrics. my canopy <laughs> yeah so um but yeah this is you can tell why this album sold a, a zillion copies because it's so like accessible and um i will admit i listened to free fallen once and i was like okay i don't need to listen to this again because it, that is like one song that has been played so many times that it's I don't know I, I don't it's one of the few songs I don't need to listen to as part of the album I just kind of know it and um wasn't getting too much out of it um on this listen but but everything else is good it's fun to sing along to the songs you know and it was fun discovering um the rest of the album that I didn't so yeah big thumbs up for me 
And yeah, I agree with you guys. This is I, I've known this album for men. Like I, my brother got this on tape when it came out, and I distinctly remember. I think he got it. We were going to the Baseball Hall of Fame with my uncle that was in town from Florida, and he got the record before. So we just listened to it that you know that day, like back and forth. And then I was like, I was like hooked on it. You know, I was I like Tom Petty already from the songs that I knew, and I and I like this album too. Um, but it had been a while since I listened to this whole album before yeah. um, before this week, and I. It, it's not like I was surprised, but I just, in a way I was, I guess, because I just, I forgot about those deep cuts and how much I liked them, you know, because this album is, I think about this album and I just automatically go to free fall and running down a dream and walk and I won't back down. Right. It was a little bit of you're so bad. There's a little bit of that, that, you know, that stands out, but like I, the other ones were just like, I, and every time one of those other songs came up, I was like, this is great. This is great. This one's great too. You know? Yeah. So it's just like, boom, boom. You know, uh, no filler here. Uh, you know, interesting stuff that he's doing. I like, you know, the way that it ends. You know, all right for now is kind of like the the ballad of the record. Really, it's kind of like a pretty, you know, you know, acoustic ballad. Mind with a heart of its own is more of that Bo Diddley beat rock anthem kind of yeah. thing. And then Zombie Zoo is this kind of weird amalgam of like just a pop song with like a fifties doo wop and you know like creepy you know zombie or uh, halloween noises at the beginning of the of the of this of the song so you you read it and you're like or you see the album the song title and you think man that's going to be kind of lame but it's actually no it's it's freaking catchy as all get out so um it's just it's a it's a great listen it's a very it's just ear candy it's very easily digestible um you know, uh, I love that cover of Feel a Whole Lot Better. I didn't know that. I think, actually, I learned that that was a cover when we did, when we started talking about the birds on this podcast. That's when I realized, like, oh, shoot, yeah. I didn't even realize. Of course, it's a bird song. It sounds exactly like a bird song. But that's an example of that song's not going to sound all that different from the birds version. You know, it's pretty stands holds pretty true to it but as opposed to the cowboy junkies who we just talked about covering the velvet underground i don't know there was there was a way more getty up with this you know and i don't know if that's just because of the nature of the song or but he's not doing a whole lot different also though tom petty has like 15 singles that have established him as tom freaking petty not like oh our my first awareness of this tom petty (laughs) individual is doing a faithful birds Birds cover yeah that's where i look at it is you know then it's like uh, as i'm like album eight in right right i'm paying tribute to one of my you know yeah um, influences i think that's a different vibe right yeah yeah and it's just it's like it's it's the artist it's the song that they picked it's how they're it's just it's a perfect combination of 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 everything kind of coming together i love the apartment song that might be my favorite deep cut on this it's just a great yeah there's like this yeah this is it's like harkens back to like kind of his influences it's him to saying true to himself i can't believe the record company would hear this and go like yeah i'm not really hearing any hits on this it's like are you not, like what are you looking for you know i can't believe that other members of the heartbreakers like i mean they probably hated not being on the record and not being invited but like to not like the songs like that yeah. does it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but uh, yeah, this is a high recommend. I love Tom Petty. It was great look going back and watching that documentary and just and it's he's one of those artists that you know they'll play songs in the background. I'm like, yeah, I forgot about that. that's a great song. He's just got song after song after song that is just like it's just great. He's a great songwriter, you know, and he just and he and he kept it coming for many many years. So. Um, uh, yeah, big thumbs up on on this one for me as well. This is gonna be, this is gonna be a highly uh, ranked record for me for the '80s as a whole. I think it's just it's solid straight, you know, front to back. So um, I love Tom Petty. Big thumbs up. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel, I don't want to feel like we're underselling it, but that's this really more so than almost any album in the eighties just seems to be sort of the perfect synthesis. Maybe born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen mm -hmm. um, is the only thing I can really compare it to where it's like, what does the pure synthesis of this artist who's a big artist sound like what's their peak commercially yeah and you rarely like even when we did like elton john right like we i don't think we ever covered or, or i don't even know if there is an elton john album that wraps know. it together as neatly as this one does right yeah. or, or even like billy joel right like there's you know those i'm thinking of those huge male acts American, right yeah well the elton and, john's an american but yeah Right, but you get what I'm saying? It's, yeah, it, you're right. The rest of them, you can, like Springsteen, right? Like, people will make arguments for Born to Run, you know, different stuff. Darkness. Darkness, right? But Born in the USA sort of is like, okay, like, what does Bruce Springsteen sound like at his most commercial? Right. right? And sometimes that's not a positive thing, right? Because it doesn't sound as good. But I think we all agreed we loved Born in the USA, right? And mm -hmm. in my case, probably more than anything else he did. And... While I like other songs, maybe more from Tom Petty. I don't know if you could pick any album. No. And I'm throwing Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers into the Tom Petty catalog, right? So I'm gonna not even. I'm not gonna say I'm not gonna yeah. acknowledge that, but I'm gonna for the sake of argument here. Well, he still wrote. I mean, when he was with the Heartbreakers, it was basically him writing most of the songs with help from Mike Campbell. This right. is basically that with not with you got Jeff Lynne thrown in here, so that's kind of the biggest. The biggest right. change is that Jeff Lynne is now a prominent producer and writer on this record. Yeah. Like, I can think of bands that had, like, an album that was clearly their attempt to go most commercial, right? But I think it's really, it, this one stands out for being where the mix between quality material, deep, and also clearly the most commercially mm -hmm striving right. so yeah, yeah. and that's what makes it hard to talk about I, because it's like what is it it's like well when you think of tom petty like this is the album like you give it something they go oh i know tom petty right and more so kind of like with bruce you know you know born in the usa or glory days right or stuff like that so well and if you like if you like the sound of this the jeff lynn influence on this you're gonna i mean the next album which is actually a tom petty and the heartbreakers album uh it's into the great wide open that had a bunch mm -hmm. of hits on it too it sounds very similar like the production's very similar and it's got it's another well, that album the that's, title track what else yeah, is on that one it's got um it's got learning to fly is learning the other main fly, yes, is the other okay. main signal yep. on that mm -hmm. um but that it's just chuck it's a lot of deep cuts it's a lot of great um you know, D cups on that. That's just King's highway is on that two gunslingers. Um, it's just, it's got, it's got a bunch of, it's built to last. It's I, um, I recommend listening to that album as well. It's not, we're not covering it, but uh, it's got, it's, it's, it's in this lane. It's probably the sidecar to this. So um, yeah, this album, just to build on what you guys said, it really just like captures kind of the essence of Tom Petty in some ways. Like this is a representative album of him at his peak and, commercial appeal and just uh you know i'm i'm always kind of, well not always but i'm sometimes against you know <laughs> albums that are so like commercially successful but um or bands that are but not in this case uh, I, I can totally understand and enjoy this album along with the millions of other people who who bought it Actually, and into the great wide open, I'm just seeing here too. They have that interlude at the at the midway point where he tells the uh, 
the the, the CD listeners to to we're gonna have oh, a that's brief right. pause I remember that. yes. for the uh, you know for the for for it for uh, full moon fever it was in uh, it was a recognition of the record listeners who has to turn the record over and in yes. into the great wide open it's for the cassette listeners because cassette listeners, yeah yes. they've moved up to the cassettes from there so I always mm-hmm. I always thought that I, I like the fact that they left that part in on the Spotify on the uh, the streaming services so that's kind of funny um, yeah funny so we'll we'll three. Th- pretty enthusiastic thumbs up here um anybody have el- anything else to add nope no nope. no i think and we're gonna, all we need to say there yeah and we're gonna cover tom petty one we're gonna do wildflowers uh next season that'll be a full episode so we'll do we'll do some more bio then but i think we're gonna pass the torch on to josh who's covering yes. the stone roses yes the stone roses and in the opening montage you heard made of stone and now you're going to hear she bangs the drums Right. I I alluded. Well, Matt, what are the numbers on? Uh, oh, Stone you remember? Roses? Good, Josh. Yeah. All right. So, Stone Roses debut album or, or self-titled album it might be their debut. It album is too. their debut album. There you yes. go. Thank you. Uh, comes in at number five in the 1980s on best ever albums. Number three in 1989. Number 35 of all time. It is the Stone Roses' highest-rated album on best ever albums. It comes in at number 319 in Rolling Stone, and the Stone Roses are ranked number 74 of overall artist rankings, a full 110 more than Tom Petty. So, wow. Yeah, they only made two albums, guys. And, uh, <laughs> and so, Tom Petty made a lot so more the, than that. The influence... We need a brief bio because you got <laughs> Tom Petty and The Cure. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, geez, I'll try and go fast. This is a this is a band that I knew nothing about, and, you know, I always kind of heard them name checked and they are had a short career but a, a lasting impact on the music scene and and uh british music at large as well they originated in manchester england um first formed in 1984 so we've got five years of them performing in in uh various iterations before before uh, this album was released um the members of the band and this album are Ian Brown on vocals, uh, a guy named Manny on bass, Rennie on drums, and um, John Squire on guitar. Now, those people kind of uh, come in and out with other people that I'm going to talk about um, through leading up to this album. There's some kind of overlap and uh, comings and goings across different bands and things like that, so I'll try and keep it um, as straight as possible. It's, it is a little confusing. Um, Ian Brown and John Squire met in grammar school um, and started a Clash-inspired band called The Patrol, along with Andy Cousins and Simon Wollstonecraft. Um, that band fizzled out, and uh, Wollstonecraft uh, joined Johnny Marr and Andy Rourke in their pre-Smith band Freak Party. So Smith's also from Manchester, if you mm. recall, so there's overlap there. Then Squire and Cousins started a new band called the Fireside Chaps and later changed their name to The Waterfront. And this is when uh, Gary Manny Moundfield uh, joins the picture and along with drummer Chris Goodwin and singer David Carty. Those guys would uh, be short-lived as well. And uh, Ian Brown joins this band briefly 
but then the waterfront ends in 1983 as a band then in 83 andy cousins comes back and said i'm going to start another band and uh with ian brown this time and then wollstonecraft comes back into the picture as the drummer after turning down the job as the drummer of the smiths uh so big mistake maybe on his part <laughs> i don't know the uh and then pete garner comes in a guy named pete garner comes in on bass um who is back in uh, the patrol, that very first band I mentioned, um, and as well as John Squire. So there's kind of these, a lot of overlapping um, people at, at various times. Um, this is the group that became the Stone Roses. Um, and, and that's when they used their name. They rehearsed for six months and then they performed their first show on uh, May 1984. Um, oh, and then <laughs> Wollstonecraft left the band, um, and then Rennie Wren came in in May of 1984 as well. They recorded a demo in August of 84 and played their first gig as the Stone Roses. Um, oh, I said I said that incorrectly. They form, performed their first gig as the Stone Roses on October 23rd, 1984, opening for Pete Townsend at, at an anti-heroin concert. Um, so I guess heroin was a big deal. An anti-heroin <laughs> concert? Yeah. I support specific. that cause. <laughs> <laughs> In 85, uh, March of 85, they recorded their first single, uh, Double A-Side, So Young and Tell Me. Um, they started to build a following in Manchester, and then they went into the studio in August of 85 to record their debut album, but were unhappy with the results. Um, so it was shelved. And then they <laughs> notoriously, due to their frustration with lack of attention um, in the Manchester scene, uh, Brown and Rennie started spray painting the name of the band around the city and got, got uh, negative attention that way. Um, they brought on uh, Gareth Evans as a manager and then... As this always works out, um, Brian Brown and Squire started to write more songs, and so they thought they should start getting more money than the other band members. Um, and so then Cousins and Wren left the band in protest, <laughs> with both eventually returning. So um, at this point, however, Cousins was pushed out of the band by um, Gareth Evans, the manager, in May of 86. And then in December of 86, they recorded their first demo, um, as a four-piece, so with the uh, first recordings of Sugar Spun Sister and Elephant Stone. Elephant Stone was a single that was released before this album came out. We're still doing uh, singles in the UK that weren't on albums, by the way, for this at least for this band. Um, if if you've lost track of who's in the band, don't worry, it's not that important. Pete Garner leaves in June of '87, um, and this is when Manny became the permanent replacement solidifying the lineup you hear on this debut album so just to recap it's ian brown and uh manny on bass rennie on drums and john squire on guitar the um and then at the end of 87 they released their second single sally cinnamon um which is a good song um this is a band that i not only listened to their debut album but kind of a lot of the singles around um, that because they kind of capture also kind of the essence of the band. Um, in May of 88, they play a show at the International 2, which is kind of like a warehouse club in Manchester to raise funds for a campaign against Clause 28, which was a series of British laws that prohibited, quote, the promotion of homosexuality. 
Um, in the audience of that show was none other than 16-year-old Liam Gallagher, and that concert is what he said served as his inspiration to start a band. So the Stone Roses have a direct uh, a lineage to Britpop at large and, and Oasis. There'd be no Oasis without the Stone Roses, is what I'm saying. Uh, Noel Gallagher has also said that he was inspired by the Stone Roses at another gig. So I don't know if he just wrote that coattails of that quote or what, but um, that is in the record. Uh, they were signed to a label finally, uh, Zomba Records, um, but then transferred to a subsidiary called Silvertone Records, which would later, um, you know, come into a lawsuit, as often happens with these bands. They were signed to an eight-album deal, which seems like a lot of albums to me, but uh, what do I know? And I only do a podcast about music. Um, in 88 and early 89, they recorded their debut album across... Uh, three different studios uh, produced by John Leckie. Um, they released that single Elephant Stone that I mentioned earlier in October of 88, but it made little impact. In uh, Made of Stone, the song that's in the montage, received more attention and got played on the radio, but only peaked at 90 on the UK singles charts. After the album was released in May of 89, the album hit number 32 on the UK albums chart. And the single She Bangs the Drums gave them a top 40 UK hit and number one on the UK independent chart. They started getting attention, selling out more shows. And then later in 89, they released the double single Fool's Gold slash What the World Is, which um, reached number eight on the UK singles chart. And that was so that was their first top 10 uh, single. Um, you may have. Did you guys listen to Fool's Gold? It's kind of tacked on to another release. Uh, a later release of the debut album, but it wasn't on the original. Um, oh, I thought it was. Okay. Uh, original release in the UK and US. So, um, but yeah, it's it's on it's on Amazon. I'm sure it's on Spotify mm -hmm. as part it is, of the yes. album. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, good to know. Um, and then they uh, Fool's Cold quickly became their uh, famous song and. They performed it on top of the Pops, and that gave them their first top 10 hit, and the album rose to 19 on the charts as early as uh, 1990. So, side note, the band and the album helped invent the Madchester scene in Manchester, so Madchester, M-A-D, um, mm. which is defined as a fusion of rock and like acid house music and psychedelia and 60s pop um, some of that i'm sure you heard in this album other bands like the happy mondays and the charlatan charlatans and james are also associated with the scene um, the stone roses are also considered part of like quote-unquote baggy uh, culture and fashion and so that is baggy jeans often flared alongside brightly colored tie-dye tops and general 60s style um, first in and Manchester. We've been talking about like British subculture since all the yes. way back in the mid '60s <laughs> right. with the, yes, mods the mods and the 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 greasers or the yep. you know the yeah so yeah and that skins the look, the look was capped off with a fishing hat that um, was kind of that bucket hat style that was uh, supported by the Stone Roses drummer Rennie. So if you imagine it as kind of like part rave, part retro, part hippie, part soccer slash football casual that's kind of what the baggy style was um however it was like all there isn't these... really an american equivalent to this <laughs> no, is there no. like in yeah. in like caucasian subculture so i'm trying to think like no and no, rave culture yeah. was kind of so much bigger overall i think in the uk than 
than here. Oh, God. If you look at, yeah. like, the charts in the 90s, like, half of the songs are techno songs I've never heard of in my <laughs> right. life. You know, I there's some the, that crossed over, but, like, for every one that came to America, there's, like, eight that was yep. in the British charts. And, you know, I think that plays into, like, trip-hop, too, and electronica and stuff like that. Um, the... The um, this style was later eclipsed by grunge and Britpop in general, so it was kind of a short-lived thing, um, just like the band. Actually, the um, cover of the album is by John Squire. Um, so he did uh, the guitarist did the cover of the album. It was Jackson Pollock-inspired piece titled "Bye Bye Bagman," which is a song on this album. And I have some uh, wrap up after that, but that's kind of where we are at this point. Overall, to recap, they were a lot of members. They played for a while, you know, a number of years in Manchester, released, released some singles, and then finally put out a debut album. So I didn't have any expectations of Stone Roses or, well, not much. But what what did you guys think of this album and the band, the Stone Roses? How about you, so, Matt? You go first. Actually, I, I've known, I knew this record going oh, into this week. Okay. Um, and, and the reason I knew it was because... Oddly enough, there was another podcast that I think it was a comedian did it. It was called The 500, and he was oh. essentially the previous, not the most recent, not the 2020 version, but the one before that, the Rolling Stone Top 500 albums. So he went through that list, and on every he did one album an episode, so he's probably oh. still doing it. And he always had a guest come on um, to, that, that liked the band or whatever. So for yeah. this record, it was Jim Jeffries, the Australian comic, was oh, like, right. talking about the Stone Roses. So I, I listened to that episode. It was ranked pretty high. It was like, or pretty low, I should say, on that. It was like 498. So it was one of the first episodes. Mm -hmm. But the way they were talking about it, I was like, I got to listen to this record. And like that inspired me to listen to it. And, and, I loved it then. I love it now. It's it's like all this. It's got all the stuff that I like, <laughs> kind of love. It's just like yeah. it's you know. It's just like incorporating a lot of that. You know, like that '60s pop, the psychedelia, which I which I I've liked. It's got a little bit more. Um, you know, uh, it, there's a little bit more of that modern Brit pop sound. Very melodic. Um, great production. It's like this. It's kind of this lo-fi, distorted yet crisp and clean. It's like it's like it's somehow like walking that fine line of being like this really distorted kind of like messy production, but also being very clean as well. It's kind of really interesting. It's um, anthemic at, at times, like very echoey reverb, yeah. that stuff's all kind of slathered throughout this, but underneath it all are just great, great songwriting, you know, and it's like one of those, and it gets almost better as it goes along. Like it starts off pretty good with this kind of like druggy, you know, hypnotizing. I want to be adored and, and then goes into more of the, you know, she bangs the drums. Um, you know, I, I didn't I didn't hear that. Well, that was, you know, I, I, I want to hear like Elephant Stone or some in some of these other songs that weren't on the, the, the edition that I listened to. But yeah. Waterfalls, just a really pretty kind of walking, you know, guitar part. That's that's just, um you know, that's kind of little hypnotic. And then it goes into like Don't Stop, which is basically like a. A, like a like a messed up version of waterfall it's it reminded me of animal collective and the stuff that they did if you guys mm. know them but i think john does i don't know if you do josh we're definitely covering Probably them a little bit um but that but it's got this kind of it's like a very kind of it's like a messy kind of there's lots of stuff happening the kind of all over the place it's psychedelia but in some ways it fits together um so i i, I heard that you know this time around going man that does that definitely sounds like some animal collective stuff there um 
but once and I like Bye Bye Badman, but once you get to like Elizabeth or not, and Elizabeth, my dear, is basically Scarborough Fair. <laughs> yeah, it's like yes. you know, it's like a little you know minute long Scarborough Fair. But then you get like Song for My Sugar Spun Sister, Made of Stone, Shoot You Down, This Is the One, I Am the Resurrection. It's a murderer's row of excellent yeah. songs, <laughs> and it's song. just like and it's just like and I love it when albums do that they start off really solid and then they they wait they, they they wait for the second half to really kick it into high gear and it's just like and it just it's a, it makes it for a great listening experience i didn't know that fool's gold wasn't on the original i just listened to the record so yeah. and it's funny that that's it's, it's actually kind of apropos that it wasn't on the original release because my one knock on this record was that song goes too long um it's like i get the point i like it's a very funky you know um yeah kind of dance kind of groove that it's going on but it's like almost 10 minutes long and it, it, it can be half that half that you know length and, and still be effective but but it's actually not part i shouldn't have listened to it by my own <laughs> criteria because i'm only listening to like the true album version um so uh but it's still i still like that song as well but yeah man it's it's this is just it's hitting on all cylinders for me it's just great production the, the melody very catchy um you know, interesting, different sounds, all that. It's, it's, it's just scratching so many itches for me. So, yeah, big thumbs up on the Stone Roses record here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I kept listening to this one, guys. Like, I, I pulled a mat on this one. Um, I listened to this, and I said, that's pretty good. But I ha didn't feel I'd cracked the code yet. And yeah. then I listened to it a second time. And I said, that's pretty good, but I haven't cracked the code yet. And then I listened to it a third time. And you know what my take was, guys? It's pretty good. And it just <laughs> didn't get above oh, it for me. Yeah, I don't yeah. know how to describe it. It just, uh, and that's not to say it's bad, but I, I had the Matt thing that you've talked about, Matt, where it's mm -hmm. like, this album is considered a top 10 album of the 80s. There must be something I'm missing. Mm -hmm. There must be an element of this that isn't just... I, I described this album in my notes. I was writing it down. I said, this is a, a collage of things that we've heard throughout the 80s mixed with things that are coming in the mm -hmm. 90s. Like, there's songs that sound a lot like Britpop in the yes. 90s, especially mm -hmm. Pulp. I mean, the song, Song for My Sugar Spun Sister could be a Pulp song uh, to the point where I'm like, I can't believe this isn't a Pulp song in some ways. And certainly elements, uh, we haven't done a ton with, Brit rock yet, and I at uh, Brit pop, and I know a lot of people would say that, um, you know, Oasis is who we got biggest right in in the U.S. and that in some ways yeah. they are and aren't a part of that movement, but definitely that their brethren of the era, like James, right, that you mentioned, like that song Laid and stuff like that, for sure could hear that immediately in the Happy Mondays. In there, there was elements of Jesus and the Mary Chain in here. There were mm -hmm. certainly elements of the Smiths and sort of the goth rock we listened to. And it was as if I was building a collage of different stuff. And a lot of the stuff I really like or is good sounds for me. So nothing about that was bad. But as I got to the nearly 10-minute funk at the end, which was <laughs> enjoyable, but also like, do I need 10 minutes of yeah. funk in this album? My, my take always as I got to Fool's Gold was I was like, that's going to be the 12th track again, and I'm going to have the same take on this again. And I think that was my my lasting take, and that's why I was curious to hear what you guys thought. And I wrote down, Matt will really like this album, and I get the feeling Josh might feel the same way I do about this album as I do, but we'll see. I'll, I'll be curious to hear. 
Um, and so that's why I was really happy Matt had the first take because I was like, I, I want to hear from Matt what about the album stood out. But I, and you, it wasn't that you were inarticulate, Matt, but kind of what you said is you're like, I like the way this album sounds. And I was like, well, there's elements I like how this album sounds too, but what else, you know, like what else pushes this, transcends this? Um, and maybe, Matt, you can give me added context in that, or maybe I'll, I'll punt to Josh. I think I kind of want to hear Josh's take because then I want to circle back around and talk about this in context as well. So I, I would say this is a slight thumbs up for me. Um, I was not left baffled, but I was left um, a little bit bemused. Like, bemused is probably a bit, eh. I was left a little bit confused, I would say, mm-hmm. as to to what it was about this album that rose it up to the top 10. Because there's albums that I may not like, but I completely understand why they are. It's very rare I hear an album and I'm like, I don't understand why people were moved by this. Even for albums that I really sometimes don't even like, right? It's I think this one and Astral Weeks fall into the category of like, I just, I don't know what it is, but there's just something missing from how other people hear it that that I, than what I'm hearing. And it's rare that I don't sort of line up with the albums that are considered there. I mean, the rest of the 80s, if you wrote a list of rock albums, right? Murmur, Daydream Nation, Doolittle. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I get all of My Bloody Valentine, right? Which Josh didn't like. Yes, get it. You know, all these different albums. This is the only one I think that's in that sort of higher strata where it doesn't raise to that for me. So what do you think, Josh? Well, it's, I think part of it, I can understand your position. I, I think I felt that way initially. Um, but the more I listened to this album, the more I liked it. And then it started just becoming the album that I kept coming back to when I wasn't listening to the other albums for the show. I just kept picking tracks out and then I was listening to parts of the songs. And I think they... So for me, I really like this album. I think it's, um, is it a top 10 album in the 80s? I don't know, but I think what it does, uh, like Matt says, it does really well. I feel like it captures the um, all of the kind of like parts of the 60s rock, British rock sound that I liked, um, mixed with like kind of the best parts of the psychedelia that I liked, and then kind of has some of this like proto-Britpop uh, sound to it, which is an essentially like, you know, kind of retro 60s, British rock anyway um I think the uh so I think I don't know if you felt this way but like maybe it always its reputation I think has grown after the band was done um and like kind of retrospectively it's people are like it's the best British album ever it's like blah 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 and like all these like NME ranks it like the best album ever or something Mm -hmm. like that um I don't know if that kind of colored or at least messed with your expectations i can totally understand if it did um i don't i don't know because i didn't dislike it it just yeah but i can't help but think i fell into the mat trap a little bit where i did view it a little bit you know in the knowing it got it was an a paper yeah um when i thought it was a b plus paper Yeah. yeah i think that's fair i i think for me what really works on this album are the melodies um the guitar parts and kind of how they it it really reminds me of like the kinks and like the birds and kind of like the best like pop elements of those bands there's a 
there's a slight Britishness to this band that I really like. And I kind of like the sound of the guitars and kind of how washed out it is in some respects. You know, there's no kind of like stuff that doesn't work for me, like noise rock and and kind of the distortion. There's none of that there, but there is kind of like a almost muddy quality to some of this um, sound. And ultimately, I think it's just, I don't know, it's just like the hooks and the 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 pop kind of nature of this um that that really worked on me i don't get kind of you know doing the bio i don't kind of get the acid house type of fusion of that i saw references to kind of like the rhythm section capturing this beat um that is reminiscent of that genre but i guess fool's gold too is kind of like a dance track so i guess that that is where kind of that fusion lies i don't but I don't really kind of get that like Manchester baggy culture. I don't know those other bands either that you seem to be familiar with, like James and stuff. So um, maybe that will be more sense if I listen to them. But yeah, I think this is just for me like a really good pop album. And um, it's not too, and it doesn't really sound like anything. It sounds more like, you know, future, you know, Oasis and Pulp and other Britpop bands than it does of like 80 you know there's no synth in here there's no it's just kind of the four piece stuff and it doesn't sound like REM either in some ways so um, you know which no outside so, of the jangle guitars yeah. that's about the only thing they share in common so yeah. I don't know I it's kind of got this laid back vibe that worked for me mixed with the, the pop rock and I'm doing a bad job of describing why I liked it, but it really just got under my skin. And then I just started like every song, like Matt said, was like, oh yeah, this is good. This is good. Um, this is the one they play at the Manchester United games. Um, apparently, um, that's like an anthem for them. And I just found myself like every song liking. And like Matt said, it was the fact that it, it in fact, the first time I listened to it, I heard, I want to be adored. And I was like, what is this? I don't, it's kind of like shoegazy. I didn't really like it. It was the most popular song on the, you know, like the rankings for Amazon music. And I was like, well, okay, I don't like this, but then like, it just, (laughs) which is funny because that's by far my favorite track on the album. That's so weird. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Like that's the song I like the least, but like everything else is like solid gold for me. So, um, I honestly, I I heard I want to be adored and it was the opposite of the fool's gold thing. (laughs) Every time it fooled me, literally, fool's gold. (laughs) I think for me, you mentioned the washed out sound, which is a really good description. I think I don't want pop music with washed out sounds. I want Mm. it to be ethereal and less freeform. And I think that was a little bit of my problem. Like this is not, I don't want this sound with like trying to write songs that kind of sound as much like Big Star as they sound like you know shoegaze like you mentioned yeah. it, it's kind of was almost the inverse of the galaxy 500 album which i know you hated but i mm-hmm. loved where it was like the galaxy 500 just they ran with the vibe right and i'm like the vibe check is not right here because the vibe should feel different for me mm-hmm. for my mm-hmm. style with that thing and then the the glimmering pop comes in and it was just yep. it was a little bit of a mismatch for me stylistically it was like it by themselves parts that i like but put together it just rose to like there's there's very good songs like made of stone and uh i i I mentioned i love i want to be adored is a really good song um she bangs the drums is a song i liked um quite a bit shoot you down um so it's not like there's not songs i don't like but yeah 
there wasn't anything like on this album that rose to the level that the the shoegazy washed out albums I really love had or the pop albums I love had. So I think that might have been what it is. Yeah, I get that. I think it's kind of like for you, this album takes aspects of other things you like, but doesn't work as well. Like you said, the collage aspect. I think the collage just well, it's not like a, are wrong or something. It's not like a peanut butter and pickles sandwich, but it's like a peanut butter and something else sandwich, right? Yeah. That's not exactly how I think two things should go together. And it doesn't taste bad to me, but it's like I'd much rather have like banana. peanut butter and banana or peanut butter <laughs> yeah. and chocolate or something, you know, that's, mm-hmm. I think kind of how I'd describe it. Yeah. Yeah. See, it's interesting because all those reasons why you don't like it are reasons why I do like it. Cause I, well, that's love, why I knew you'd like it. Yeah. I, Cause it's I, got melody I, and yeah, it's got all but the stuff. I like, the, yeah. I, I, the melody juxtaposed with the kind of the unique production, the, the, um, like I said, it's got this weird, you know, amalgam of like this it's kind of like edgy distorted yeah. you know production but you it's think also this is edgy see i didn't find a this album bit, edgy a, a at little all. bit i mean yeah and in a sense because it's not edgy in the sense that like the there's the distortion there's the echoey you know there's the it, it's not a it's not crisp production in the traditional sense no. but it but it's also it's also very in the non-traditional sense this is i wouldn't say a crisply produced album would no you? but it's but it's in, in but in a weird way it's it's not crisp no that's not the right word but it's see sometimes i guess i th- i feel like production that's not crisp or that's like you know that that's an edgier thing is a little bit more you know by nature almost sometimes is can can be more off-putting or can be harder to digest whereas you're getting some of that here but but it's also for me it was really easy to digest because it was just so melodic it was so there's some great drum beats in here you know there's plenty of things to hang the hat on it's just that the old so the old story with me with like you know give me something that's got at the foundation a really good melody or a really good beat and then put some quirkiness or some instant production aspects to it oh yeah you know, i get it that that like that make it like its unique thing and while they are a collage of all these different sounds past and future um it's also a very distinct sound that's kind of their own, Agreed. right? Like, and so I, I love all of that to make it a yeah. unique album for a band that really was just around for this and one other record. Yes, it probably does. Is it the fifth best album of the decade? Probably not. I think that that's probably <laughs> no. a little. Yeah. Are they the whatever? What did they say? It was the seventy four, right? The seventy fourth <laughs> band of best band of all time. No, that's <laughs> kind of you know. I think you probably need more than two, unless you're Nirvana, right? You probably need more than two records to get right. that status. Um, however, I think this is just a great record, and it's and it's anthemic. Like that's the other thing too. This would be a great thing to see performed live, really, to get people going and. Um, it's just like I said. It's just checking off a lot of boxes for me. So um, it's yeah. it's I I like the kind of the unique mismatch nature of it because I don't think it's mismatching in a negative way. Mm-hmm. But I get what you're like, saying, and there's something and and I, I totally understand. Yep. And I understand that feeling of like, what is it that I'm getting now? The Astro Weeks comparison's a little like that. What no, I no, really I'm, didn't get. I'm not comparing this in sound to astral you're, no but all. your reaction to, but your reaction yeah. to like yeah. how it's so revered no right? no like, no 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 i like this album way more than i liked astral oh, okay, okay. i'm saying that like in terms of albums that are definitively always listed in top yeah. 10 lists yeah. that's right. the only other album i can think of that is okay. as much a miss do you get what i'm saying yes, yes. so that's that's yeah. where yeah mm-hmm. 
Yeah. yeah. So I, 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 it makes sense though when I think about it. Like I think about I, I knew you would like this because of all the things you just said, Matt. And it makes sense with me that Josh would like it because it takes out all of the things that you have not liked. Yeah. in the decade which are <laughs> right. i think the things that i do like yeah. in this style so it's funny it's like by taking them out it's like ah it did crack the code for you like oh this sound and vibe can be a version i like and for me i think it's sort of like oh it's missing some of the stuff that really gives it right. the 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 heft to it so it, it is on brand for all of us the more i think about it yeah yep. yeah so yeah i agree it's probably if if it's the fifth highest rated album of the 80s or whatever, that's a little bit overrated in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, probably. It's it's, there's solid. probably like the thing, like everybody's kind of coming back and being like, wow, and like rediscover, which is great. Go rediscover yeah. albums. But like, does it mean it's that good? Eh, you well, know. it's my I third mean, favorite album tonight. So that should give you an idea. <laughs> of like, <kind> of <laughs> like, yeah, so. yeah. yeah. All right. Good stuff. That's Any probably. Fi- go ahead. Final sorry. thoughts. Any final thoughts on the band? No, no, and, and I know I spent a lot of time being the contrary voice, but I'd like to say this is a very solid album. Yeah. So when I say that, please know that I still give this pretty comfortable thumbs up. Oh, but yeah. I get that though, because it's like you know you're you're like oh it's going to be really good number five of the day, and then you're like left a little nonplussed. It's kind of like wow, we're, and I I understand that reaction totally. So yeah. Yep. So after this, um, just to wrap up. They had a 1990 outdoor concert at Spike Island in Whitney's, England, which is attended by 27,000 people and featured other um, like DJs and bands as well. And it's uh, despite sound problems and bad organizations often became known as the Woodstock of the baggy generation. So it's very influential. Um, The only other artist I recognized at that concert was Paul Oakenfold, who's like a DJ. Mm. Um, So that's kind of, I guess, in line with the, the house rave mm-hmm. scene that was going on um they then had a uh, their final single was called one love in july of 90 that was their last original release for four years as they entered a protracted legal battle to terminate their contract with silvertone and then um the parent label uh zomba took out an injunction so the band couldn't record anywhere else um, but then in may of 91 the court sided with the band and the Stone Roses then signed with Geffen and began work on a second album. But Silvertone ruling, uh, they appealed the ruling and delayed the, their album for another year. So the uh, album uh, Second Coming, what didn't end up coming out until December 5th, 1994, um, they spent 347 10-hour days working on the album um, at one point. And Jeez. that album, based on the one song I heard, uh, sounds very different than this album. It's like it goes straight up into like blues rock, like heavy blues rock sound, and uh, that's what the overall album is described as as well. And they received mixed reviews, and then the band slowly started to kind of come apart, and members left, and they um, canceled some some big gigs um, or announced a comeback tour, but then that was canceled. Um, they played, um, and so they kind of dissolved the group in October of 96. There was some brief reuniting in the mid-2000s. Um, they played at some concerts uh, like Coachella in April 2013 and, and London and Glasgow and Manchester um, and, and actually released a couple singles as well in 2016 and um, two there. 
But then ultimately in 2019, John Squire said in an interview with The Guardian that the band had disbanded. So it's kind of a rare instance of a band not getting back together. And with only two albums, um, I guess it's not much to draw on or something. Mm. But I, it seems like, you know, people, this band is loved, beloved in some some ways, um, in some circles. But uh, yeah, short, short-lived, short but sweet, influential. And uh, we, two of us, two of the three of us, liked the album a lot and one of us sort of liked the album so <laughs> that's it for the stone roses we're not covering mm. the second album and nope that was ranked 334 in the 1990s yeah so there and we go ever albums yep so now we got the cure a whole journey in Who? the 80s with the uh, cure <laughs> another album well regarded by critics and fans yes. alike but before we get into that uh, in the montage you heard love song and now you're going to hear a clip from Fascination Street. So, yeah, we went with a couple of the singles on this one. But, Matt, why don't you go ahead and run the numbers? So, Disintegration by The Cure comes in at number four in the 1980s on Best Ever Albums. Number two in 1989. Number 32 of all time. It is The Cure's highest rated album on Best Ever Albums. It's the highest rated uh, album in Rolling Stones list tonight, coming in at number 116. And The Cure are ranked number 27 of overall artist rankings on Best Ever Albums. So we have covered The Cure many, many times. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Famously, uh, the first time we were supposed to cover one Cure album, but we ended up covering <laughs> two Cure albums Oops. because of a little bit of a snafu with uh, Matt covering it. Um, and then we ran through quite a bit of their uh, catalog in the 1980s. There's going to be some reference points um, to some of those albums as I do a bio. The, the, there is so much material about The Cure that um, synthesizing this into one bio is going to be hard. And I know we had two longer bios this show, so I'll try to do a little bit of a streamlined one. Um, I will say that uh, The Cure, just to give you an overview uh, for those that may not be familiar or were not aware of this, they have sold over 30 million albums worldwide. They've released 13 studio albums, two EPs, and 30 singles. And they are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as of 2019. So they have all of the bona fides there. Um, by the time this album came around, though, the only member of The Cure that started the band that's left is Robert Smith. And mm. the, one of the stories, of, there are several stories that go with uh, The Cure. Uh, in their journey to this point. One is many, many, many band change member changes, um, and there's going to be some major ones before this album. Another is use of drugs and alcohol is going to come up quite a bit. And then uh, the third thing that is going to come up is going to be sort of the shifting idea of the band creative direction style with Robert Smith. So... Hmm. Those are things to keep your uh, mind uh, open to. So another thing I thought was funny was that 
I did research in about six different areas for this, and a couple say the band was formed in 1978, a couple say 1976, and some reference it 1973 when they played a one-off show. For the purposes of uh, this bio, we're going to start with that one-off show in April of 1973, where uh, the founding members of The Cure, who are Robert Smith on piano, notably I did not say vocals, piano at this point, Michael Mick Dempsey on guitar, Lawrence Lowell Tallhurst, we'll hear about him quite a bit, the Lowell is a nickname and it is like LOL, like laugh out loud, icon right there is the name, uh, Mark Cagano on lead guitar and Alan Hill on bass. So they play one show, um, they're a band called Obelisk, which reminds me, Josh, I'm not a big video game player of, what was it, uh, the Metroid, uh, the Sega Dreamcast, like, uh, was it Metroid or, uh, Gaunt, no, Gauntlet Legends, I think was the oh, name of the game, oh, where you yes. find the Obelisk, that's the only time I've heard of that, yeah. so there was stuff like that, so that made me kind of chuckle. After playing that show, though, they just kind of practiced songs by David Bowie, Jimi Hendrix, and Alex Harvey, uh, in the period there, and in 1976, while they're at a school called St. Wilfred's Comprehensive School, which is like the most British school name ever, isn't it? Uh, yeah. They formed the band again. At this point, um, they have a lead singer uh, that is not Robert Smith, um, which I found very interesting. Uh, Alex Harvey is the name of the lead singer. So uh, their band name at this point is Malice. Um, uh, Kagano and Dempsey and Hill are all gone by this point. So now you've got Robert Smith with Lowell Tolhurst still floating around. And you've got, um, uh, I, I, I apologize, I said Alex Harvey. That's the, the songs they were covering. The um, Martin Creasy is the vocalist, I apologize. So Martin Creasy is the vocalist. Uh, Porl Thompson is on guitar. Um, and then uh, you've got Robert Smith and Lowell Tolhurst. So it's a four-piece at this point um they play three live shows uh during december 1976 and then martin creasy leaves the band um and pretty much at that point uh they do another it's very difficult because the evolution of robert smith as the singer does not happen you'd think it would happen right after that right but no yeah. they instead do a talent competition that they win that gets them a recording contract. So they're another one of these bands that wins a show and gets a recording contract. That seemed like it happened a lot in the 1970s, <laughs> that origin story right there. And it's with a German record label. Ariola Hansa is the name of the label. In uh, May 18, 1977 is when that is extended to them. Uh, at this point, the lead singer, and you'll find this funny, uh, Josh, and there's no relations, name is Peter O'Toole. <laughs> um, he is the vocalist that had taken over for Creasy, but uh, Peter O'Toole leaves the band, and that is, uh, after they audition several vocalists, uh, Robert Smith eventually assumes the role of lead singer. So at this point, it's Dempsey, Smith, Thompson, Tolhurst as the band. Okay, so Smith is back in the fold at this point. So they continue performing around, and they eventually um, find that the the record label is not super satisfied with their demos and they gave them a song called killing an Arab, which is an awesome song. And somehow that group did not feel 
the record label did not feel that it warranted <laughs> releasing. So they wanted them to do cover band versions of popular songs, and you can imagine how well that went over with somebody like Robert Smith, who is famously, even at this point, um, possessive of the uh, Cure's image. And so they their uh, contract lapses. Uh, luckily for them, um, it did not lapse very long uh, because... Uh, some other folks had heard Killing an Arab as well, most notably uh, Polydor Records scout Chris Parry, uh, who signed them to his new label Fiction, which was a subsidiary of Polydor in September of 1978. And he decides to release the song Killing an Arab in December 1978. For those that are wondering and thinking, whoa, is that something that could be a cancellation? No, it's based on a short story by Albert Camus, which I think at one point, Matt, not to pick on you, but didn't you call him Albert Camus at one point, which I remember <laughs> at some point? Did so I? It's, I, I believe it's The Stranger, so. I know that. I read Correct. that book. Yes, that, that is not what Killing an Arab... Um, uh, well, I, actually, I think it is based on The Stranger. Come to, to, he did come to actually think kill it. an Arab in that book, yes. Yep, yeah, come to think of it. So uh, the more I think about it, I'm like, yeah, that's what it is. So um, they... As early as 1979, we're putting on stickers basically saying this has nothing to do with us saying to kill an Arab. It's about <laughs> it's a literary reference. But, you know, the, Robert Smith had other instances and, and he was very sincere, by the way, about that. And it lines up. But he had other instances where he'd write literary references that led to controversy down the road. Do you, do you think we, the we cure gave that. people the benefit of the doubt too much? Do you think they had, you know, too much respect for, for they thought people would understand things? I, think. I don't think that they were sort of processing being traditionally popular at this point. I think sort of yeah. it came, even though it didn't come fast and overnight, I think that kind of came a little bit faster than it went out uh, there. But um, another thing that's going to be important is they released their debut album, Three Imaginary Boys, in uh, May of 1979. It's kind of wild to think that The Cure start right. in the late 70s. Um, we did not cover that one, um, but it uh, has Boys Don't Cry on it, which is sort of a top tier Cure single, one of probably one of the ones that most folks might know who have mm -hmm. cursory knowledge of The Cure. Um, they're not really experienced in the studio at this point, so they hire Mike Hedges uh, as their engineer, and he'd be on other albums as well, but uh, Robert Smith was not happy with his production on that, and he just thought that it was lightweight and a little bit too poppy, and it needed a little bit more substance. So it's also around this time that The Cure opened for Susie and the Banshees. Um, Robert Smith would later join the band as a guitar player um, in the band, but at this point they're just doing support, and he definitely credits that with moving them from sort of like a traditional post-punk band into sort of more of an artistic direction. Um, would sort of be what he credited them with and opening his mind a little bit on that. Um, around this time, um, Lowell has begun to drink and Robert Smith has begun to do psychedelic drugs at a higher level. Um, and that sort of peaks uh, with uh, albums we did cover, um, 17 Seconds. I shouldn't say peaks. It's, it becomes a piece of um, the songwriting process for 17 Seconds, uh, and then Faith. 17 Seconds is 1980, and Faith is 1981. Those were the two albums that we were talking about that we covered as a two-part early in the 80s. And then um, Robert Smith sort of imagined them as a three-piece set. So you've got, which actually was very fortuitous for us that we did 17 Seconds and Faith together. We also covered Pornography, which, uh, not surprisingly, uh, it's going to be important for this album, too, because uh, Robert Smith 
was not in a good place at that using lots and lots of drugs. The band described the album as nihilistic and the whole band sort of was in that area. The record company was not happy with uh, the album because they didn't think there were any singles, which I'd probably agree with. And they actually made them polish the track The Hanging Garden to release as a single. I thought it was funny because the record label said they didn't think it was going to be there, but it ended up being the band's first UK top 10 album, charting at number eight. So it did go through. And uh, this is also where uh, a lot of times at this point, the band is being described as having an anti-image image, which kind of drove Robert Smith to distraction. Um, and he sort of leans into it a little bit because he comes back with the big hair and the smeared lipstick um, coming on right now. So that is how, if you're wondering how that origin comes, it is from them being criticized for having an anti-image image. They kind of went up on the stage with just random clothes that were on. They were a little bit goth, a little bit just basic, right, would be the word I would say. Um, that was kind of how they were described. Um, at this point, Simon Gallup leaves The Cure, and he and Robert Smith don't talk again for 18 months, but then they do eventually make up, and Robert Smith is on uh, is playing with Susie and the Banshees as their lead guitarist in 1982 and 1983. Um, he's on the album Hyena with them, uh, but he does eventually lead, uh, leave in June 1984 to come back to The Cure. There was some questions as to whether that was going to happen. Um, in fact, a lot of people thought The Cure were uh, broken up. Uh, interestingly, during this time, uh, Lowell Tolhurst has moved over to the keyboards instead of the drums, and they sort of challenge Robert Smith to write a pop song, uh, and Robert Smith is not enthusiastic about this, but then he decides to go along with it, and he writes the, he writes a song called Let's Go to Bed because he's like, what better way to write a pop song than just about, you know, wanting to fuck, basically. And um, it actually ends up being a minor hit in the UK, uh, number 44, and Robert Smith kind of had like a love-hate uh, relationship with that song. Uh, more hate, I'd say, than love. He just couldn't kind of understand it. In some ways, it proves some things that he thought already, but in a bad way, kind of, like about the music listening public. Um, they, of course, discover the synthesizer famous. I shouldn't say discover, but really lean into the synthesizer around this time. This is when they're really uh, releasing songs like Love Cats and stuff like that, which becomes their first top 10 hit. And they release the album The Top, which is synthesizers, a psychedelic album. We didn't cover that one, but it's kind of a Robert Smith playing all the instruments type of song. Um, he didn't play the drums. That was a guy named Andy Anderson who played it. Um, and there was a saxophonist that was not him, but he was playing uh, the rest of this stuff. Uh, it was a top 10 hit in the UK, and that is the one that kind of broke them over to the Billboard 200 in the US. It's still only 180, though, so they're still under the radar. Um, at this at this point, there's all kinds of people being fired. They're bringing people in and they're getting fired left and right. There's a couple different guitarists. There's bassists. There's a producer who comes in as a bassist. He leaves um, because of the stress of the touring. Um, they bring in a, a Cure roadie who comes in to be a bassist for a while. And then eventually Gallup, uh, he cast aside, right, in the non-talk for 18 uh months comes back and he is a member of the band and Robert Smith is very happy about that. So in 85, after all of these shifts and almost breaking up, you've got Robert Smith at, uh, he's playing both, uh, the guitar and 
writing the songs and singing. You've got Lowell Tolhurst. He's not on the drums anymore. He's now on the, the piano. I told you it would be complicated. You've got um, uh, you've got poor old Thompson who's playing, who was playing the saxophone. He's now playing the guitar and the keyboards as well. You've got Gallus back in the fold again as the bassist. Um, so you've got all these different people floating around, and they uh, release... Amazingly, with all of that, they released Head on the Door, an album that we covered and all of us loved. And that is sort of the album that begins to break them in the U.S. They get to number 59 on the charts. It's another top 10 album in the U.K. Um, They release uh, a VHS and laser uh, disc called Staring at the Sea, which also becomes a greatest hits title for them and gets put out their songs. And then this segues them about a year and a half later into Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, uh, which becomes top 10 in uh, the UK again. It once again is number 35 in the US and uh, the most successful Cure single up to that point, Just Like Heaven, was on that album. So you can kind of see it's it's starting to come together for them. They've added in some pop sensibility. Mm-hmm. But this is Robert Smith. And you can imagine that Robert Smith <laughs> has a very conflicted uh, relationship with the idea that all of these really catchy pop songs are sort of moving the image right in another direction where they are a mainstream band. And he says, I don't want us, the worst thing I can think of is us becoming like a stadium rock band. Um, And so um, he sort of leading into disintegration decides like, I want to take us in a different direction. And the direction I want to lean us into is I would like to revisit some of the things that (laughs) were like pornography at this point in terms of like where I was at. He, was depressed he was regularly taking lsd at this point which i don't think is a surprise when you listen to this album in terms of his songwriting and he's basically in his in descriptions i've seen he's taking the lsd to cope with depression and he feels like i need to make another work that sort of explores this depression um but maybe in a slightly different soundscape uh than pornography but he definitely was was aware of wanting to be more gothic and revisiting a little bit of those three albums at the beginning. He felt like he needed it. He also is about to turn 30, so that's oh a big God. deal. <laughs> um, so, yeah. and But in his mind, you know, that's 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 a... And like any, any round number, right? You're, yeah. you're thinking of that. And so... Um, you know, there's a lot of other things that are going on around here. A bunch of they were in the world tour. They had a riot at a concert in Buenos Aires when a bunch of people bought counterfeit tickets and were denied entry um, to the venue. It actually leads to them not playing in Argentina again until 2013. Um, the band brings in the psychedelic furs keyboardist Roger O'Donnell um, to become a sextet, a six uh, member uh, group um, for this tour. Uh, and at this point, Tolhurst is becoming like pretty much completely unreliable due to alcohol consumption. And he and Robert Smith are friends. Um, they have kind of like a, they definitely have like a big brother, little brother, like one's the alpha, one's not type of dynamic to them a little bit in my reading. But they clearly were friends. And um, leading into this album as they're doing the sessions, the band comes up to Robert Smith and is like, listen, you got to like get rid of Tolhurst or else we're all going to leave the band, which I thought was funny considering how much other members had gone that Robert Smith could easily be like, sure, I'll find <laughs> other people. But in this case, he seems to co-sign off of the idea that, yeah, uh, it's time for Lowell to, uh, Tolhurst to go. So he uh, does leave, uh, get kicked out of the band. 
And um, he pretty much says that while it was really painful for him, he also understood it. He does come back um, for them much later in the, the 2010s uh, to play with them for a little bit. Sort of square that circle. Um, he does get full writing credit um, on this album, which I thought was a nice gesture, but they said basically his um, contributions were very minimal due to the drinking along the way. Um, with all of this, this album becomes hugely popular. Um, it is a it has three top ten singles in the UK. It is a top fifteen album in the US. It gets up as high as number. 12 and it actually fascination street gets all the way to number one on the modern rock charts and love song gets all the way to number two on the pop charts so i mean they are in rarefied country uh, uh, company here in terms of their charting along the way um the rest of the band says though that even though robert smith was trying to recreate the vibe and the feel of pornography while he was clearly going through some stuff the rest of the band was also not in that nihilistic state that in fact there's things where they said they kind of like almost like uh leaned into it when he was around but then when they left they'd joke around and sort of not be serious and stuff when he was gone to allow him kind of to have the vibe on that um there's a lot after this. We're going to cover The Cure, I think, later one time in the 90s. If not, I can kind of postscript it. But that, I'll tie it off there because there's a lot of other stuff. But that's sort of the the uh, run-up heading into this album. Um, interestingly enough, this album was not super critically well-regarded uh, in its time. But, of course, retroactively has not only come to be well-regarded, but considered to be one of the best albums of the 80s. So the yeah. question, of course, now is, is it one of our best albums of the 80s? And there's probably no one better to start with with that question than my friend Josh. Yes. Well, I, I, was, I was getting ready for this, and no, it's not in my, it's not my best albums of the 80s. I, I think I discovered, you know, listening to this, going through this cure journey with you guys that I really like when Robert Smith's not depressed and when head on the door and kiss me, kiss me, kiss me, or kind of, um, what train, you know, what transpires or what's, um, you know, created when, when he's in a better headspace. I, 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 this album is difficult in some ways to talk about because I find it interesting sonically, but I don't like immediately, uh, you know, gravitate toward or love it. I was I was surprised that it was like the best selling, you know, album of and their most popular album, um, in in some ways because it is kind of, it. Okay, so first of all, it's like it's super dark again. It's it's um it's kind of gloomy, but the sound is different than it was back on pornography and some of those earlier albums. It's well, they're you know, synthesizers. Yeah. That, of course, is the big difference. Yes, yes. Yes. I think I think that works to its advantage in some ways. I think the synths work really well with this. Um, it's kind of got this hypnotic quality, but everything is like really stretched out on this and very, um, you know, kind of. We, we, we always say this word, but this really is kind of like a soundscape of in some form of like whatever Robert Smith's headspace is or or kind of. I don't know, like slow, almost like slowed down pop songs in some ways, slowed out synth, uh, drugged out pop songs. And um, it, it gets away from kind of the concise nature of those previous albums and him kind of incorporating different 
instruments or different like would you say uh the, melodies the template almost disintegrated josh from like <laughs> yes. the normal idea that's mm-hmm. that's a good point i mean this album in some ways is more akin to nine inch nails pretty hate machine than than some of the pre the, than the previous two albums of theirs um it's kind of got this droning nature to it um there's there's a lot of uh, i think there's a lot of kind of build on the album itself there's like overlapping sounds and kind of feelings within songs that is interesting like there's chimes that that come out in plain song that then carry over into pictures of you i feel like on prayers for rain and then the follow-up track the same deep waters you there's some kind of like sonic connection between the two that kind of carries over into the next thing if it almost feels like a the second movement to this to a same song or something in some way and i feel like there that kind of overlap happens throughout the album that um that is um that is interesting there is a you know there is oftentimes like uh like a grounding drum beat that carries throughout an entire track like on close down or um uh, uh, last dance i think and um, there's not a lot of lyrics also i've i found throughout the album it's it's very much like you know all instrumental for stretches then he comes in with a couple verses and then it's instrumental again um, it's very much like this whole album is very much a mood piece all of the songs are really long you know we're getting like five minute plus songs on most of the tracks i think if not if not more and it's um but that being said it's also kind of a very sumptuous sounding album so I did kind of get drawn in at times and I could kind of, I don't know. It was, it was hard for me to get on this album's wavelength or I would get pulled in and then I'd get pulled back out again in some ways. And I wasn't always like vibing with what it was going for. I, um, the songs take their time. Um, the whole album takes its time. It's a long album. The, and the, um, but then when the, like the kind of the big, hits on here come in like i'm back in like i really like them and and maybe i'm just like a basic bitch or whatever but like the the um you know fascination street and love song and pictures of you those are all really great songs and they it's like he come he comes out of it a little bit it's like more up tempo they're a bit more popular and that like really works for me again but then it kind of like gets dragged back into the sea of like despair and and um and, and moodiness so i don't know i'm like really mixed on this album i like it in some respects um i don't like it in others so i'm a really like solid thumbs in the middle on this one yeah so it's it's funny you said I me mean, you're talking you have to compare this album with pornography because the despair the sadness the drama it's yeah. all there but this is infinitely more listenable for me like this is where you know, Robert Smith is taking all of those really d- depressing thoughts and, you know, places and dark ideas in his mind, but he's putting the music and the production behind it is just way more palatable for me. Um, I agree. And I, That's a good point. It, yeah. It's 
you know, it, it's 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 what I'm looking for for the Cure. This is the def- this is easily the definitive Cure album for me. I mean, when you talk about all the like all the terms that probably Robert Smith hates, you know, the goth and the the, the you know the sadness and you know, the mope and all that stuff, and and the drama, it's all here. And everything that you said, Josh, is is right. It's long, like it's drawn out. There's plenty of parts in here where there's just like it's like this instrumental, and you question whether there's going to be lyrics at all. Yeah. And then like four minutes into the song, he'll start singing. You know, so there's a lot of buildup into like what he's about to say, and you know, put you through lyrically. Um, but it, it never gets, it never bores me. I I I I love the sound of this production. I love mm. the sound of the guitar and the the uh, the synthesizers it's just so I, I i was listening to this earlier this week and cherry said you know it's it's like he's got this it's so sad and dark but it sounds so great and nice like it's just this weird yeah. kind of combination that 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 they're coming up with here i think the the, the track listing is really interesting i think that the first three songs plain song pictures of you and close down which if my math is kind of accurate you're looking at like like 17 minutes worth of songs they're all opening tracks it's like three opening tracks in one you know i could mm. see each one of these like songs being the ones that opens it it's like man which and it's just I, I i find that interesting i don't know if i've really if we've really covered or if i know many albums that you yeah, could say that about that it's like wow that's like it's not till you get to love song before you're like in a song that's like okay this is not an opening track um but it's just um it's slathered with this just really really great production it's very much the cure sound it's like that traditional kind of like the bass that like whatever you know a feed that they're putting through the monitor to make it make that sound it's just you know it's this epic overall sound that um i i love the ride that it takes you on there i don't yeah. think that there's a dud on this i think that there's times where a song will start in a certain direction and a couple minutes later it adds a different layer to it that keeps me interested so that even though yeah the song might be seven minutes long it's kind of like in some ways well it's two songs in one kind of the way that they're the way that they're doing it so it it so it doesn't there's no moment like we just covered the stone roses and we just did the what was the last track that they did um that was just really long it's like okay i get it right it doesn't need to be this long the, i i don't feel that way with any of these songs even though that the overall sound not just within a song but throughout the album it's got it's got a very similar kind of sound some oral uh tempo for but man they're just throwing in enough intricacies enough things here and there and it's just such a nice it, it's it's weird to say this. This is a nice sounding record, even though it's really dark, right? It's just again, you're really you're melding these two things together that are mean. really yeah. hard to do, um, and it's a great it's a great great album. Uh, it's it's easily. Yeah. I think this is. I, I was looking through the all the um, the different full episodes that we've like normal episodes that we've covered. This might be my favorite of the the three. I think we just got three heavy hitters tonight with the, with Full Moon Fever, the Stone Roses, and this album. It's just. I think this we're saving the best for last as far as I'm concerned, but, um, you know, uh, fascination street, great bass line, you know, like more of a rocking song lullaby is this, that was another single I believe. And that's kind of like this weird, he's kind of doing this whispery kind of thing, talking about Spider-Man's going to have you for dinner. And you're just like, this is super creepy, but man, if it's not engaging and and really, and pleasant to listen to. So, um, yeah, I, it, it pictures of you is just like, that song could go on for another seven and a half minutes as far as I'm concerned. I just, I just love the sound of this record. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's, I'm a big thumbs up. I think that this is where they really shine. 
I mean, my God, this album's freaking incredible. It's just, yeah. it's, I do feel, this is one of those albums that for me, it's like, I, like when, when I ask somebody if they listen to this and if they like it or don't like it, I don't judge them, but like, I kind of know how much they lean into my tastes. There's mm. certain albums like that, right? Where like, I, it's like a feeling out point for me to some degree because I'm different than you guys in that actually some of the stuff, it's not that I don't like it, but dark cure is what I think makes the cure, the cure. And I think famously in our Mm -hmm. pornography album, I think that's an incredible album. And I know you guys, it was just, it was unattainable for you guys with the, the, um, you know, sometimes you'll hear this album. I think it's very reductive, but you'll hear this called like an accessible pornography. Like, I don't think it is. I think they do different things. I get the idea that they're both dark, but The Cure isn't just dark on two albums. They're gothic romantic at minimal on most albums. The only thing I don't love about this album, even though Love Song's a perfectly fine song, it doesn't fit on this album. It's the only like yes, weird thing on it. And I'm just like, why? And I'm yeah. sure, like probably for you, Josh, it's like, ah, Refuge. For me, it's yeah. kind of like, why is this here? like it does it's the one song that doesn't fit because vibe wise it just isn't a fit and then it's funny because it's if you just i listened to this album one time of the three that i listened to it where i just didn't listen to that in it and it just so much more coherent without it there because it's sort of like you guys both didn't mention it's another thing i want to say this is like an incredible headphones album it's like a just a top tier s tier headphones album um this is definitely an album where it's like i'll tell you what i'm gonna put this on and i'm gonna be nothing to the world for 40 some odd minutes because what i want to do is kind of like fold into this i can't imagine listening to this album doing something else it's just an album that completely for me demands that you fall the enter it yeah which i think is kind of what he was going if someone doesn't really listen to music that way or can't i do think you're going to not get all of what it is because it sort of commands you to put headphones on to some degree and listen to it now with that being said it was funny i was visiting um my folks a couple days ago and my dad as much as he knows the cure probably knows you know the the pop hits right? right and i was listening to this and you know i had it on uh, i said hey you don't mind if i i listen to an album that's here he's like yeah yeah he was cooking something for fourth of july and uh, about three songs in he came in and around the um prayers for rain same deep water as you disintegration yeah. run and by disintegration my dad's like this is a really good album he's mm-hmm. like this is dark but like exactly what sherry said matt it's like this is dark but very romantic dark like uh and i said yeah they're, they're a great band he goes yeah I, I only know them as a pop band but they did this stuff too i said oh yeah they did this stuff too he goes i think i like this as much as i like the other stuff so it even caught my my dad's ear on a non-headphone type scenario mm-hmm. but the production's incredible on this. The bass lines all over this album are incredible. I know what you're saying, Josh. There is like a, if you just isolated the drums on this, it might be jarring because it's pretty much that thing where it's just, just almost like an industrial sound of yeah. the drum, just hitting and penetrating through. And then after a while, uh, I just, I'm not going to say I tune it out, but I, my brain wraps around its point in the song and, and the drums the drums are not what the songs are about here uh it's they exist to kind of uh it's not keeping the time but they exist to provide a very specific function in the songs but the songs are really about robert smith's voice the atmospheric layered guitars the synthesizers 
um, the bass lines, which are always up front, like all good Cure songs are, the bass lines are near the front. Um, and uh, lyrically, it's back to Robert Smith writing, you know, Hellscape Dream songs. You know, you mentioned the Spider-Man. It doesn't have anything to do with Spider-Man, Marvel Spider-Man. This is right. like a man spider, right? Like type <laughs> right. deal. So Robert Smith's not like, oh, let me just throw a Spider-Man reference. It's so that if you hear that, right, know that it's basically the idea of like a Spider-Man character is eating yeah, like you, eating right? You. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that is the idea behind that, and that's the vibe. And it might not be for everybody, but I'll I'll tell you, um, one of the things the Cure does remarkably well is they they make the dark palatable, which is yeah. an element to to. We've talked about it a lot, but you know the the romantic undertone of what I feel most goth is. Um, this is one of the best albums of the eighties. Uh, unlike the Stone Roses album, where I'm like, oh, I'm like, no, no, this is absolutely uh, one of the best albums of the eighties. And this album also, my love of it way predates ever reading anything in the press about this. I mean, I was given this album when I was eleven years old, and I listened to it on uh, like Walkman headphones. Even back then, I'm like, this is an incredible album. Um, and I think my second thing was sort of. I li- other thing that happened was I did I listened to this as an album, so I don't process like Fascination Street and Lullaby and Pictures of You as singles necessarily. I process them as tracks on this album. So, and I think that might be a little bit different from how you guys process the Cure, because I know Matt said he kind of came to them by the greatest hits, and Josh, you're kind of coming with knowledge of that as well. But to me, that's why Love Song stands out so much because it's like, well, this is. This is like from the earlier two albums, right? Or greatest hits type deal or a single, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it, it juts out on this. Uh, once again, not to knock it, um, but there's a reason that's the song that like 311 covered, right? Like, yeah. let's just put it that way. So, um, <laughs> I, I mean, to be fair, I didn't, I don't associate, I don't know the cure well enough to associate this with like just singles. I don't think I knew oh, gotcha. what okay. album they were on. So. so you didn't hear like pictures of you or lullaby and say, oh, those are cure singles. No. No. Okay, In gotcha. In fact, I'm not even sure I heard Lullaby before um, mm. as, as a single. So, um, yeah, I think what you're saying, though, John, I think it is it does make the dark palatable. I think that's kind of like a really great descriptor of this album. And there is a romanticism to it. I agree with that. And I think, I mean, I did listen to it on headphones, but I was doing other things, too. So I, I agree. I think it, it totally fits, like, the framework of of sinking into this and, like, getting pulled in i think there is like i said there is a hypnotic um part part of this album and i can totally get if you're on that wavelength like why this works so well i mean both of you said that so um there's just certain albums that just they don't even need to demand my brain they just get it right or and that's this is an album i would guess matt probably that might be similar to you yeah, no, this yeah. was, um, mm-hmm. I, I, again, yeah, like you said, I knew The Cure through the singles that I got. Actually, a friend of mine in college, the first time I heard pictures of you and a number of these songs, I, before I got that that Greatest Hits album, a friend of mine made me a, a mixtape of Cure songs. So that's that's how I started. I was like, really? the Because I always, like, growing up, this was like my, you know, judging a book by its cover thing, but watching the video for Love Song, I'm like, who's this guy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the video, you know, totally like in my, you know, you know, ten year old brain just being like, I don't like this, and just 
give me more hair metal or whatever. But like, um, so, but when I did like listen to this record, cause I, at some point I heard, oh, oh, this is, this is considered the quintessential cure album. And I, and I did listen to it and I was, yeah, I was just going, oh man, this is, this is one of those albums that just like, it's, it was easy for me to get into. I liked the fact that the songs were long. I liked the fact that it, it just kept me engaged. And so it wasn't, this was not a hard listen, you know, either this week or the first I, time I ever, I will it. say it this easy, though. You know. I think disintegration is the quintessential cure album for people that the cure are not a top 10 band for them, because I know a lot of people who the cure are a top 10 band for them. And I don't know if any of them would say disintegration definitively is the, oh, interesting. the, the definitive. Uh, is that pornography cure. then? Some, if that's it, some like even earlier than that, some would say head on the door merges all of the things together best like the pop. I mean, it's not that they don't like disintegration. I just think especially if if the synths part of it takes away from some of what you don't like or, or yeah. that you liked about the early cure. Like I like there is one song on here that sort of brought me all the way back to pornography and that's last dance which feels like it could be a song on pornography and it is stark it's a dark dark song sonically it's also an awesome song um i wanted to point that one out and close down is another song i love your description matt that there's three opening songs on this album that's a perfect way to put it because it is they all like have this crashing cascading song one mm -hmm. like epicness to them uh, and that, I think that's also why that it's like, okay, maybe that's what they're going for on this. And then you get Love Song, which has a, you know, very identifiable baseline, but you immediately like, okay, this is a pop song. Um, maybe they're going in a different direction and they don't. It's just that song, right? But like, um, yeah. So I, when yeah. you said that, I was like, oh, that's a great way to put it. That's a great description. But yeah, this will yeah. be, I don't know where this will be in my final. I, I have my rankings and stuff, but I mean... This will be showing up in my top ten. It's just where. But I, I think John, going back to what you said earlier, like I actually think I think a, this being a, a a more listenable pornography, or I forget the term that you used, but like I, I don't I don't know if accessible. I would say that's accessible. I don't know if I would say that's reductive. I think that that's actually pretty spot on because that's one of the reasons why. Like, I, the reason I didn't like pornography wasn't because it was dark. It was because of just the music was, it was dark, Fair. but it was done in a heavy, like that's the word that, that the best way for me to describe that. It was just heavy, not heavy metal, but heavy. And just, man, I need to, I, I, I need a rest after that. I, I need to like clean it's, myself. I mean, like listening to this record is mm -hmm. almost the opposite of it. It's heavy. It's, it's, it can be just as heavy, but, it, but, but melodically it's kind of, it's light in a weird, it's such a weird dichotomy that's happening in this record. Yeah. That's one of the reasons it's I the like it so much. synthesizers, guys. I keep yeah. saying that, that the synthesizers and, and you guys have liked synth rock probably even more than I have throughout the eighties. Right. And so mm -hmm. it, it makes a lot of sense yeah. that the synths are the X factor for you guys, because let's be honest, I don't like everything that's assaultive in tone. Like I didn't love the public <laughs> image limited stuff, but you guys really don't like almost any music in that lane, right? Where I like a lot of music that I would call, you know, openly confrontational. It has to right? be, yeah, it has to, mm -hmm. it has to have something at least else. It, it can't be just confrontational in and of itself. It's got to have something else for me to get onto. Well, I would say even just if it has something else, if it's confrontational, I find Matt, that it can kind of sap that away for you sometimes. And I know in Josh's case, it's just a sound that just doesn't work for him. 
historically. Potentially, so, I'd have to think. I'd have to. It depends on the record, but I, potentially, yeah. Um, well, I, early Sonic Youth albums, because what happened is in Daydream Nation they added more oh melody, God. and in the first yes. couple they didn't. And there yeah, you go. give me some that's melody, the, right? Yeah, yeah, that's all I ask is for some melody. And that's, that's what right. the, that's what the Cure. I mean, there were melodies on earlier Cure albums. It's just they yes. were just bashed over with just direct assault <laughs> on yeah. you sonically. And uh, this is like there's melodies on My Bloody Valentine, right? Like yeah. and stuff like that. But mm. yeah. Yeah, I probably would say this is my favorite Cure album that we've covered. I, I I like the head on the door a lot too. That's probably number two. I would say. Um, actually, I thought this was a double album. I was like, man, this is a long freaking album. But I'm looking here, and apparently there was a couple of tracks. Like looks like Homesick and Last Dance were initially bonus songs, so they weren't on the U.S. copies, I guess, when they those came out. But they were later added and made a double album. Or made a, but it's not like a double album in the traditional sense. It's just like they added those songs on and they were like, we need a little bit more space. So it's expanded. They're definitely to two, two of the more de depressing songs on the album. Yeah. Too, those two, they stand out for yeah. being the, amongst the starkest songs on the album. So it's interesting. They were the two add-ons. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but, that could be Robert Smith going like, this is still too poppy for me. I need a little <laughs> bit more morose. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah. I don't think. I don't think we are covering them. I, I just was looking at the '90s here. We and may I not. I think Wish is the last one that's considered to be sort of in the the Cure albums where they were still considered to be, you know, like playing in the mainstream, so to speak. After that, kind of. Yeah. Uh, well, they have Wish, and then they have a '91 album in Treat, which I never hear about. I guess uh, I they guess have an album called Show. Oh wait, that's from two thousand. Yeah, it's uh, there's, it's really I think Wish is the last one that would be something in which they were still sort of considered to be, like getting MTV airplay, radio airplay, and stuff like that. So that's not to say there's not stuff later, but in terms of, you know, greatest hits stuff and where the stuff comes from, right? Wild mood gonna... swings from nineteen ninety six. But if yeah. you were to look at the track list on that, you're not really seeing anything that um, no. I'm trying to even remember what the, I don't even think there's a solo, a uh, single on that one. If I, remember. I just should play so album Friday, cover. Friday I'm in Love is on Wish. Right. No, the, on no Wish is still mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Friday I'm in Love is one of those songs clip. that I'm oh, sure yeah. you guys will love. Yes. And oh, I yeah, fine on it, but oh. it's like, yeah. No, mm -hmm. Mint Car. Mint Car is on. Um, oh, okay. Yep. Is on that. Is on Wild Mood Swings. So that's a, that's okay. a good song. Josh, you'd like that song. That's more of the Friday I'm in Love mm. era, you know, vintage Smiths. But yeah, we're the only the next thing we're covering for the Smiths is, or that's Smiths. Excuse me. The Cure is. Um, we're doing Friday I'm in Love as Buzz, a Buzz clip. The, yeah, so Buzz yeah. Thing. Which is funny because Robert Smith and Morrissey famously hate each other. So that's just something yeah. else that you could do. Well, they I'll always kind of like, you know, that's they kind of like in some discussions that I've, you know, come across. It's like that people talk about them in the same vein, like these, you know, these, the, the, but they weren't, they're similar, but they're not really at all. It's, you know, it's kind of like Although, they kind of get talked about in the same yeah. conversation. They do share one topic in which they both are uniform on and that they both hate the monarchy yeah like if you hear that they are very outspoken about how much they hate everything I, about the monarchy so I they also, do share that i also love it when they got inducted the cure got inducted to the rock and roll hall of fame with the woman was interviewing robert smith on the red carpet she's like are you really ex are you as excited as i am to be to be to be inducted he goes apparently not <laughs> like deadpan <laughs> Like I said, there's a shared sense of humor. There. It's, a, it's like you hate the people that are most like you to some degree. So, yeah. 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 But uh, I'm going to kind of leave it 
leave it there. Um, yeah. The Cure continue to play live to this day. Uh, yeah, it was funny. They just you, you, I was going to say that they you were saying how they didn't want to be like a big. He didn't want them to be a big, you know, arena band. At it. I oh, read he mentions some, that because they go on a big stadium tour directly after this album. He's like, yeah. we've basically become everything that I've not. But then they just they about. just finished a tour that one of the biggest of the year it's like you know sales wise and they were selling out like crazy for this most recent yeah. tour that they were just on, and they're so. fighting Ticketmaster for raising prices right stuff. yeah yeah so good on them for that yeah. yeah no he was very aware of the fact that they after this album where he was trying to get back to the basics they ended up playing stadiums in the u.s and the yeah. uk and once again i think he had like a love-hate relationship with that because he wanted his music to be heard but you know yeah he was He's self-aware. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 It's funny. The, you know, this is our last album that we cover for the eighties and we started out with Bauhaus. So goth rock on both ends. That's right. We bookend about book book good, 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 good call back there, Josh. <laughs> yeah. so, definitely. I, I do agree. I think my final thought on this is that this probably is like the best or one of the best goth rock albums that we've listened to. Um, I totally kind of get like, you know what it's going for and kind of, i know robert smith didn't like the goth rock label and a lot of the bands didn't um that were considered goth rock but i feel like this captures some of those 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 feelings and, and uh well i think aesthetic. it was less that he dislike didn't dislike goth rock is he really hated that no no image thing that they said mm. they were just sort of this plain band because he thought there was sort of an artistic underpinning and i think he was aware that you know, you can't help but be aware when the references that you're pulling right. right from it. So I don't think it was necessarily goth as much as like what it came to be seen as as sort mm. of like schlocky goth, right? Like if it yeah. had been like a harder goth, like he might have embraced it a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, and I see what you're saying too. There's probably plenty of like diehard Cure fans that would not would not say that this is their. They, they might even say this is like there's like four or five albums that are better than this right but i think that one of the things that makes an album great is the fact that like you can take kind of more of a niche genre like like a goth rock kind of the mopey kind of like dark you know genre that the cure have and then universalize still hang on to that quality and that that essence of who you are as a band but then universalize it to like people that wouldn't like it ordinarily and and have it just be this kind of mass appeal i think i think that sometimes is a secret sauce for a great album is to take that unique sound and to make it more you know palatable for everybody but still hold on to it and that's that's what this record does and that's probably why it's on so many lists because a lot of people can be like yeah that's a great album even if even if you don't really like the cure what they were like the 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 true essence of the cure this is going to be this is going to be an album that you might actually like so um there's something yeah. to be said for that and one last postscript um robert smith was aware of how jarring love song was on there and it wasn't by accident that was a wedding gift for his fiance at the time mary mm-hmm. Poole, who he had been with from forever and he said it was an open show of emotion it's not trying to be clever it's taken me 10 years to reach the point when i feel comfortable singing a very straightforward love song he says that one song, I think, makes many people think twice. If that song wasn't on the record, it would be very easy to dismiss the album as having a certain consistent mood. But throwing that one in sort of upsets people a bit because they think that doesn't fit. And guess what, Robert? That was what I thought when I heard it, too. So, mm-hmm. But A, I'm okay with that. And B, it's it's the shortest song. It's not, it's not even three and a half minutes long. So even if you don't like it, you could. it's going to be over pretty quickly compared to everything else. But um, but yeah, it's it is it's like that. It, it is that thing that stands out a little bit. Um, 
but it's still a good song. If you're gonna have something stand out and be a little different, make it might as well make it a good song. Mm-hmm. So there right. we go. And that takes us to the end of the show, guys. Uh, next week, it will not be a uh, regular or cold listen hot take or bonus or anything. It's going to be the end of season review, which is usually run by my friend uh, Josh over there. Josh, do you want to give listeners who may not have ever heard our end of the show runs before a little taste for what they might be hearing? Yeah, we kind of give our final thoughts on the decade. We um, give our our out personal album rankings. Um, it could be as many as 20 this decade. We haven't decided yet, but usually historically it's been our top 10 albums. And then I throw in some little superlative categories that we um, talk about and like, uh, like our favorite new discovery or uh, most uh, best night album, uh, things like that. So it's a, it's a fun wrap up show and it, it clears the 80s and makes way for the 90s and like i said there's a bonus episode floating around that matt and i taped and who knows there might even be other bonus albums before we get to the 90s as well um so stay tuned yeah yep so i think that's it. any final thoughts guys no it's been quite a journey okay well and we will continue it uh in the very near future by tying it off so for matt and josh this is john Thanks so much for listening. Combing the Stacks can be found on 13 different platforms. Viewer feedback can be sent to combingthestacks at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at CombingThe and on YouTube by searching for Combing the Stacks and throwing us a follow.